Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast not looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time, but instead going back to school for this September season. I am your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm good, Darren. I'm I'm off the floor, man. Um, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're back in our comfort zone of not covering movies. Movies <laughs> that are on the 250. 250, yeah. Which we, we hardly ever seem to do anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I, but it's also because we go fortnightly as well. It tends to kind of take the focus down a little bit. Uh, we have made no progress. We are still 75% we, of the way through the list and we will never get any There further. will be 52 um, episodes this year, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. I love that we went from there will be 52 episodes to there might be 52 episodes this year. But it's okay for this Leaving Cert season, joining us once again, the fantastic Connor Murphy. How are you, Connor? Not too bad. Not too bad at all, Darren. Nice and relaxed. Well, I mean, you are the teacher in the room, so that, that does fit with what's, what's going on here. And this week, we are talking about Greta Gerwig's 2017 Ladybird. Joining us for that discussion, a fantastic special guest, uh, the author of Social Capital, uh, writer at the Irish Independent, various other places, former news editor at the Journal.ie, the fantastic Aoife Barry. How are you, Aoife? Great. Thanks so much for having me on, as always. Now, our pleasure. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that of the five movies that we are covering this September, we will probably see a significant listenership bump for this episode in particular, particularly for audiences that are maybe not familiar with The Leaving Cert. So if you want to get into the nooks and crannies of it, last week we talked about Rosie, possibly our most Irish episode ever. This, I believe, with with Connor and with Aoife is our most Cork episode ever. But just to give a sense of orientation for any foreign listeners, the Leaving Cert is the exam that Irish students sit at the end of secondary school, which is equivalent to high school, determines whether or not you get into college. So this we're covering the films that are on the Irish Leaving Cert curriculum that students who are studying English could be examined in. And so Aoife, do you remember what you studied for your yeah. English and your Leaving Cert? Yeah, the annoying thing was I, well, it was kind of good and bad. I was the first year of the new, what was called like the new Leaving Cert, which is now over 20 years old. So <laughs> certainly not new anymore. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was the first year of the new um, Leaving Cert. And it was, the, I think it was the first year that meant that you could study films as part of the English um, course. But in my school, my teacher didn't, we, we didn't choose um, films. It was, you could kind of pick it. You, you could pick a number of different options. So we didn't actually do any films, um, which is really annoying. I didn't study films till I went to college. Um, but I I know we did um, a lot of a lot of Irish poetry, a lot of Irish writers, people like Van Boland, and we did the classic, you know, Shakespeare, etc. So I was an English like nerd in school and I just really looked up to my, and it's no surprise to anybody who knows me, really looked up to my English teacher and I just really loved writing essays like I just loved getting in there spending hours you know getting a pain in your hand writing writing a heartfelt essay I'm sure they were all absolutely terrible um so I I just remembered that kind of you know learning learning some really cool poetry Elizabeth Bishop and people like that um and um I think it was King Lear that we might have done for Shakespeare but I really enjoyed the English course um also I think they were probably really really nice to everybody that year because it was the first year <laughs> so everybody did really well <laughs> uh, I think Connor you you kind of alluded to that because myself and Andrew are maybe also of a similar vintage to Aoife we were early on in terms of like film being one of the comparative modules and I think you mentioned last week there are three comparative texts you can do three plays you can do three novels, but you can only do a maximum of one film. Um, did you find in your experience that that was the case, that teachers were maybe a bit slow to take up the prospect of doing a film in English? Yeah, first of all, uh, Aoife, that's when I started teaching. 
and I had lovely hair, oh, wow. beautiful, beautiful hair. And it was, you still do. Uh, this is an audio medium. Of course. Oh, yeah. I have hair again. I have luscious hair. Um, and it okay. was King Lear that she did, yeah. Um, Phew. Yeah, yeah. And, I love, and I love teaching Bishop. I have a, lo- a stack of Bishop books over there on my left-hand side. But yeah, you can only do, you can only do one film. Um, we discussed that the last time on the Rosie one. Uh, because basically they didn't think film was really necessary or worthy to be studied in any great detail. So just the one film and many teachers just didn't take it up because it wasn't, wouldn't have been part of their undergraduate studies at all. I know it is and it became more and more as the years went on, but you'll still find that now still that many teachers still don't feel 100% comfortable with film because it's just not part of the, you know, the usual BA in English that uh, most teachers would do, that all teachers have to do. Um, and obviously we're talking, we mentioned it there a moment ago, we were talking about Greta Gerwig's 2017 Best Picture nominated, Best Screenplay nominated Lady Bird, which was at time of release the most positively reviewed film in the history of Rotten Tomatoes. And look, this is a podcast about lists. You can change the list that we're talking about, but you can't change the podcast itself. I've been going back and looking at the Leaving Cert curriculum, the films that are on there and have been on there over the past couple of years. And it's really interesting to chart the evolution of those lists where it seems like there's, and Connor will probably correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like there are certain archetypes of movies that appear on that list. And the list is, as you mentioned, constantly changing, much like the other lists we cover on this podcast, where, you know, films get swapped in, get swapped out. And what's interesting is that, you know, there's there's always, for example, a classic American 90s movie on there. Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven was on there for a while, and now that seems to have been replaced by The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, you know, up until recently, um, John Landis's Trading Places was on there as a kind of like a comic social commentary movie. But that seems to have been replaced recently by Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. And what I find really interesting looking at the curriculum going back to when Lady Bird came out in 2017 is that it looks like there has always been a Saoirse Ronan movie <laughs> in the list. There's always been a slot that has been reserved for a movie about Saoirse Ronan coming of age and having to choose between two boys or something else entirely. When this movie Lady Bird came out in 2018, Brooklyn was on the curriculum for 2020. Brooklyn was also on the curriculum for 2021. Lady Bird first appears on the 2022 curriculum in the year 2020, and it's been there on the three years since. So it's currently, it's been on for 2023, on for 2024, and will be on for 2025. Um, can I ask, Connor, have you ever, did you ever give any thought to teaching there, Lady There's Bird? some Grand Budapest Hotel as well, isn't there? Yeah, there's a bit of an overlap. She, she's expanding. Saoirse Ronan is, <laughs> is kind of... Is, Eventually, the Leaving Cert film list will all be Saoirse Ronan movies. Like, I'm just waiting for Hannah to appear on there. That's that's what we're aspiring to. Um, but Connor, did you give any thought to teaching Lady Bird? Uh, no, <laughs> and I don't plan on teaching it either. <laughs> it's, um, I've, I'm, I'm conflicted about the film. Um, yeah, so just generally, no. And I didn't teach Brooklyn before it um, for similar reasons. I... I just. It's, Why do you hate Saoirse Ronan? Well, like, I'll be honest. With you, I, I told my daughter that I was doing this, and my my wife and my daughter went to see this when it came out, and they both came back, and neither of them liked it. They hated it, and I was going, "Okay, um, why?" And they just, my daughter just cannot stand Saoirse Ronan. <laughs> she just doesn't <laughs> like her. I just, she doesn't bother me, but my daughter's going, "No, no." I did. We can get into the film and and the why I wouldn't teach it later on. In, you know. 
okay. as we as we go through it. But it's just not for me, I think. And I have to teach something that I actually like. And this is a bit. Yeah, right. it's fine. And Aoife, obviously you are not a teacher, but do you remember the first yeah. time you saw? Well, in in the grand tradition of teaching, um, mm. your teacher in the school of life. But do you remember <laughs> the first time that you saw Lady Bird and your initial reaction to it? I do definitely and I was rooting around in, um, upstairs in a chest of drawers trying to find something I know what I was trying to look for um, earlier and I found this from the first time I saw Ladybird <laughs> which is a badge that says I love Ladybird um, so <laughs> I got I must have got some press drop or something it, I wasn't vote Ladybird it wasn't what it wasn't vote Ladybird. Lady no it says it says I yeah. love Ladybird but it wasn't yeah. vote it should be vote Ladybird right it totally should and a picture a bird with a, a woman's head with a, with or a, woman's a head. woman with a bird's head yes. <laughs> exactly they, re- they really missed a trick doing that yeah no I do remember I actually saw it twice because I think I saw a press screening of it and then I went to see it with friends in the Stella Cinema about a week or so I think later so I saw it twice in pretty short period of time which was actually really nice um I don't I don't always do that it's only some films I kind of like like doing that but yeah I do I just remember really just really enjoying it um because I felt it reflected a lot of my own experiences of being a teenager um even though it's an American coming-of-age film and typically they don't really tend to reflect what it's like being in like an all-girls school in Douglas and Cork um (laughs) but because she's in a Catholic school which we can get into later I think there is actually more you know, kind of parallels to some things. Um, and also, I'm a really big Greta Gerwig fan. So I really love that. And sure, Timmy Chalamet um, can do no wrong. And <laughs> I knew a lot of lads like him when I was in can school. He, can he do no wrong? I, I feel like in this... Yeah, yeah like, let's not even talk about the Willy Wonka film. I haven't even brought myself to watch <laughs> oh, a clip of okay, that. Oh. But anyway, don't ruin my childhood. I loved that film so much. Um, the original so much. Anyway, so yeah, so I do remember seeing it. And I do remember being charmed. Um. You mentioned Greta Gerwig. It is worth just doing some brief context in this. This is one of those ironic situations where it is entirely possible, if not likely, that we have talked about Greta Gerwig's Barbie by the time that this episode is released. And I don't know if we have by the time we're recording this. So this is Schrodinger's no, Barbie podcast. I mean, <laughs> if we were to guess, I did. You, you know, you, you, you mentioned that this movie um, did very well on, say, like Rotten Tomatoes. I'm guessing it yes. didn't do well on the IMDb 250, or we we probably would have covered it. In fact, yeah, we we had we had the podcast when it was did. released, didn't we? And that yeah. was the year where we covered like almost every kind of best picture nominee, wasn't it? Was that 2017? No, it was or? it was two it was two years before it was sorry, it was it was two years before that we covered about half that yeah. year. We didn't cover Shape of Water. We didn't cover the one that won, but okay. we did cover say Moonlight. Hacksaw we did Ridge. cover. We did cover Hacksaw Ridge, which is still on the list. Still Hacksaw on. Ridge is still on Hacksaw there. Hacksaw Ridge bless. is on the list. Yeah, it's yeah, wild. it's a very interesting list. Um, we had like the... Moonlight was on there for like eight hours. Get Out was on there for three days. Uh, Lady Bird did not get on there. To be fair. Get Out isn't on the list. Get Out isn't. It was, but it was, it was on for like two <laughs> okay. days. Hacksaw Ridge yeah. on the list. Get Out not yeah. on the list. Okay. Yeah. So they're, yeah. They're, yeah. They're, the voters the voters are sexist, racist, and anti-Semitic. <laughs> so, um, okay. It, it, all right. It, it, it's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the podcast. Okay. All right, yeah. Andrew. <laughs> okay. oh, no, the, um, I, I would also know why Hacksaw like... Ridge is on, but Moonlight <laughs> and Lady Bird aren't. Maybe. I don't um, And <laughs> Get I'm, Out. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that for similar reasons, Barbie won't be on the the. The, the thing about that is that the Gerwig has become a, a favorite of the list. Like we covered Little Women because Little Women was on the list. 
Yeah, but that is kind of like unusual. Movies like yes. Little Women and like uh, Portrait of a Lady Portrait on of a Lady fire on Fire wouldn't normally get into the like similarly yes, to how you... stuff like um, that maybe you could argue were like as uh, influential for young women stuff like Clueless yeah. and that don't get a kind of a yeah, look but in. on the other hand Stand By Me Dead Poets Society Back to the Future all get in those coming yeah, of age yeah. movies for boys You're, that's almost like a list of my pet hates you know, throw Shawshank okay. in there and you've got the... You've got the thing <laughs> <laughs> beginning to sense what Connor may not like about Lady Bird. Um, like, beginning to get I a vibe. I prefer Little Women. I, I, think, I love Little Women. I think that's a great film. I'd, I'd watch that on repeat. But um, yeah, not, Lady Bird is fine. But yeah, not, not for me. <laughs> um, Going to be a contentious one. You can feel it in the air. Uh, but I, I, do, I do think that Barbie has a chance of getting in, if only because it's pop cinema. It's a gigantic blockbuster and the mood online seems to be good. And as Andrew said, like I do think as much as Andrew may have characterized the voters of the list a particular way a moment ago. And I, I don't I don't think you are entirely mischaracterizing them, to be clear. The IMDb's talked about having to reset the votes on things like Captain Marvel and Black Panther. So like that's not an unfair characterization in that sense. I do think in recent years it has gotten better, whether because the IMDb is adjusting the algorithm or because a generation is coming of age that has maybe moved beyond that sort of culture war stuff. But seeing this new woke algorithm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Careful, careful, Andrew. We're going to be, we're going to end up, this podcast will be illegal in Florida. Um, But like you did mention like Little Women got in in 2019, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire got in in 2020. Like it does feel like maybe there is a tiny little miniature shift happening. And I do think that maybe Barbie might sneak in on that. But just to put a little bit of context for Gerwig, who I think you could make an argument for as one of the most important creative forces in American cinema in the 21st century, uh, which is quite an interesting thing to say. Andrew's eyes have literally just widened. Um, it's like, bold statement, can he back it up, Cotton? Okay, <laughs> the the thing with Gerwig is that Gerwig is this figure who is indelibly tied to the mumblecore movement, which is this movement of independent cinema that emerges uh, in the mid to late 2000s, uh, around the time that obviously... Digital is replacing film. Therefore, it becomes cheaper to make movies. Therefore, you start seeing a generation of young filmmakers who are students in college who are making these heavily improvisational, incredibly low-budget movies, which are largely just scenes of them improvising and talking to one another. And obviously, from that set, you have, you know, obviously, you've got Gerwig's partner, Noah Baumbach, but you have people like, say, Joe Swanberg, for example. You have the Duplass brothers. You have, like, Lena Dunham, for example. These are all filmmakers who come out of that school and kind of go their own way or kind of try and figure out a way to fit in the the grand scheme of things. I would argue that, you know, they get reasonably far. Dunham is by her own definition, the voice of a generation, in a quote that was not at all used to mischaracterize her. But you do have this idea of like like mumblecore independent cinema emerging in the 2000s. And Gerwig is very much at the center of that. Um, And it's fascinating to go back and read articles about it, like the Los Angeles Times in July 2008, which is like the month that like the Dark Knight releases in cinemas. It runs a feature on Gerwig as the accidental it girl, an ingenue for the text message set. Uh, a couple of months later, you have Straight.com running a profile of a former It Girl and the biggest breakout star of the tiny budget audience movement known as Mumblecore. You have this idea of Mumblecore breaking into the mainstream in the early 2010s with, like, say, Lena 
Dunham's Tiny Furniture being folded into the Criterion Collection in 2012, which causes consternation to an entire generation of cinephiles. And what is, I would argue, interesting about Gerwig is that she begins as the face of that movement, the Clara Bow of Mumblecore, and then really kind of breaks out in a way that I don't know you can say that anybody really has. I think Baumbach has probably come closest, her partner. But even then, Baumbach is making, you know, he's making white noise for Netflix. He's not making Barbie. It's Gerwig who gets to make Barbie, the $100 million summer blockbuster. Yeah, it, and, it feels like Baumbach has always kind of been in that lane of his, that, you know, you 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 kind of have a good idea what to expect from one of his movies. Whereas there's more uh, variety, I guess, in in Gerwig's output, or at least recently. Well, I mean, that that is... because I've actually talked to Aoife about this recently as well. The idea of, like, Gerwig's place and kind of, like, the... the understanding of Gerwig as a director and where she sits and the difference between what people seem to expect of her and what she wants for herself and the gulf that exists between the two, where she is this it girl for Mumblecore, but by her own definition, she didn't necessarily want to be a film actor. She originally wanted to be a theatre actor. That didn't work out. She moved into film. She then decided she felt uncomfortable being on screen as much as she was, so she moved into writing. Her earliest writing credits are on those Mumblecore movies where the entire cast are credited as writers, because obviously hell of the dialogue's improvised. She begins scripting with Baumbach. She scripts, I believe, Francis Hall with him or Francis Ha with him uh, and she also scripts uh, Mistress America with him as well um, and she co-directs Joe Swanberg's uh, Nights and Weekends which is a mumblecore movie again from 2008 just to put it in context but there's this sense that she wants she doesn't want to be forever tied to the movement she doesn't want to forever be associated with that and so what's interesting is you have we're going to talk, we've talked about Little Women, we may have talked about Barbie already, but you have like, Lady Bird is this indie movie, which is kind of almost what you expect somebody coming out of that that movement to make. Then she does Little Women, which is a much more austere prestige piece. It's an adaptation of a classic book. We talked about when we talked about it. It's much more clear in its framing. It's much more cinematic in quotes in its storytelling than Lady Bird was. And then she goes and she makes Barbie and then she attaches herself to two Narnia movies at Netflix and you have her agent uh, saying that like Greta doesn't see herself being just the biggest woman director on the planet she wants to be a big studio director like she wants to be somebody who you don't associate with making a particular kind of movie she wants to be a filmmaker onto herself which is kind of interesting because there aren't that many women directors who exist at that level is that fair to say yeah I feel like I was slightly like slightly saddened by reading that quote in that New Yorker piece and then I was trying to interrogate like why I felt so sad about Greta Gerwig's ambition you know like that actually feels like a really unfair thing to be annoyed by but I think it's because you know like when you're charting her career there you know that she started off um as an actor and in films like Frances Ha there's just she's so vibrant on screen she's just such a great actor and she's just so fully like herself she is quite like Saoirse Ronan in, in a way in that in in Lady Bird and that she's just so kind of self-possessing and like you know um quirky and weird and people didn't maybe like her quirkiness but I really liked that that quirkiness and she really encapsulated that that mumblecore era that you're talking about there um but there was I think I always had that presumption that she'd go to 
you know, a level like little women level and would like stay at that level, you know, and that ladybird was like this huge leap for her. And then little women was an even bigger leap. And I didn't actually anticipate she was someone who would set her sights on like actual studio IP big films that feel like she can't put a personal stamp on because even though Little Women is existing, you know, IP, I suppose <laughs> you could call it, even though she feels weird calling it Little Women IP, um, it felt like she she made it because she was making a film for young women or for women and a, about a book that young girls love. And that felt very personal, even though it was even though it was quite a big thing. And Lady Bird felt distinctly personal. And it feels like her next few projects like Barbie is kind of personal but not really and like Narnia certainly isn't going to be very personal we've you know it's been made in various forms um before so I felt kind of sad feeling that like she's maybe going to be out of out of my grasp as someone who I maybe like can see is like an, an a quote-unquote normal person making movies she actually wants to be up there in the big leagues but actually that is kind of amazing because she's part of an extremely tiny minority of women who are reaching the level that she's at as directors and she has come up in an era where there's a lot more focus on and support and like you know in terms of even just like grants and funding and you know um even conversation, media coverage, you know and conversation yeah. yeah around female directors and like she I, I was watching an interview with her and she realized she could be she could be a director when she watched Beau Travai by uh, directed by Claire Denis and saw Claire Denis's name at the end and thought oh that's either a man with like a woman's name or that's a woman and when she realized it was a woman she thought oh I could direct films too and I love that but Claire Denis even though she's a huge name in cinema she's not someone who's going to be making Narnia movies unless she did makes a total pivot uh, which she which she well might <laughs> um so yeah it would be an amazing it would be an amazing Narnia film. Can you imagine? If Claire Denis yeah. did an Narnia film, <laughs> I'm definitely getting that. Don't know if Netflix is in the $215 million Claire Denis Narnia movie after the Martin Scorsese Irishman kind of follow-up. It would be a pretty wild Narnia, <laughs> wouldn't it? If she did. Can you draw the connection between this movie and Narnia, though? Like, the, 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 it feels like, yeah. I think you can. Yeah, I think you can. I think there is a lot of kind of affection for um uh, christianity or at the, it, at the very least like oh okay well that wasn't the angle i was going in but yes yeah. yes that is that is an angle yeah and obviously like narnia is all about um childhood and nostalgia and memory yeah, and, yeah. but uh, and it just more, still feels yeah she can make these things personal i mean like um i brought the kids to indiana jones and i'm not saying indiana jones and the Dial of Destiny is Spielberg's most personal movie. <laughs> but a lot of his films... No or James how, Mangold, sorry. Or James Mangold, sorry. About, yeah. It's certainly not Spielberg's most so, personal movie. It's certainly not Spielberg. <laughs> I'll, I'll change tack then. I, I, myself and Child Number 2 watched Raiders when we came back. And um, that's Spielberg. So we'll stick with Spielberg. Um, and it might not be the most personal, but it is personal. And Temple of Doom is definitely personal. Yes. Um, in, in a lot of dark ways. So I think, I think Gerwig is capable... Of and and would that's why she would attack Narnia. She'd be looking for the personal aspect and mm. and pushing that. And in terms of her pushing to be kind of um, a bigger, greater director, I think there's and from my perspective, that kind of implies a conformity um, that you might not expect. That's exactly. I think. I think that's yeah. Sorry, I yeah. think it's in Lady Bird. I think it's there in Lady Bird already. Mm. Um, yeah. That 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 it's on, underneath it all. Interesting. I. I I suppose you, you you have like these directors that come from doing sort of indie movies and are very comfortable going into big blockbusters and I suppose like you you would definitely 
include Spielberg, but I guess Nolan, like you know, um, yeah. it, it was very like he he's never been. You've never got this sense that like, and we I think we've spoken a lot about this before. I think we were talking about like James Gunn, and not having the sense with Gunn that you're missing out on some on very Lady kind Bird. of intimate, yeah. <laughs> like um, mumblecore. Yeah. James Gunn's kind of, Ladybird is not something that no, you're losing. No, yeah, you know. and and I think with with Gerwig, I I I imagine she will like Spielberg continue to do movies that are more intimate and personal while having that ambition that not everybody has um or like you could say it's um, um uh, that not everybody has a kind of an ambition to do these blockbuster movies but that maybe also not everybody has that pretension where they will only do indie kind of um yeah. Uh, sort of. Not as precious about their their image or that sort of stuff. That's yeah. 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 Or that they don't see the the same like uh, distinction that some people do between kind of lowbrow and highbrow. I guess. Yeah, and I think I think just to say like in 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 looking at her comments or her her agent's comments about her career and feeling like oh what's she doing is almost like falling into the trap of why you don't see women in those higher roles you know what I mean it's that idea that idea of like going back to what she said about Claire Denis like you can't be what you can't see and it's like because you maybe haven't seen that many people do what she's intending to do automatically it's it's like you're afraid that if she goes to that level she won't be the Greta Gerwig that you're used to when actually it, it's actually an amazing thing to see you know you want to see a balance and you want to see more people um a, a huge diversity in the people who, who get to make like Christopher Nolan you know huge films that are distinctly theirs but have a huge massive budget and are made in massive studio as well too and so they get he gets to kind of do whatever he wants um so you do want that for her but it's funny how the reaction can be a bit protective um of her or my reaction <laughs> at least it wasn't a at least it wasn't a marvel movie you mind if she yeah like, yeah you know, god <laughs> I might draw, yeah like there that is a different line definitely i think I, yeah. I, I think that for me the point of comparison has always been kind of jordan peele because obviously, like Peel emerges the the same year that Gerwig does, he is another you know director at the time, best known as a performer and as a writer, worked collaboratively as part of a larger movement. You know, obviously, sketch comedy is very different from mumblecore, but he decides to branch out and he decides to make a relatively low budget movie that is maybe not what you would expect, but also kind of what you would expect. He makes a horror movie, she makes a coming-of-age movie, both of which are two relatively low-budget, safe and secure bets for young and emerging filmmakers. And, yeah. you know, obviously there's the narrative they both get nominated for Best Picture. Uh, he wins Best Screenplay that year, for example, as well. And then they have the second film. The second film is is obviously, for for, for Peel, it, it, it's us. For Gerwig, it's Little Women. And, and in both cases... You kind of, to my eye, you see a reaction against the criticism of them primarily as writers, where you know a lot of the criticism of Get Out, which won the screenplay Oscar, was that it's a it's a more writerly movie than it is a directed movie, and so Us ends up being a much more stylish movie in terms of its composition, its framing, its pacing, its structure, its imagery. It's much more imagery driven than even Get Out was, and I think Get Out is massively imagery driven as well. And then you had the same thing with Gerwig's uh, Little Women as well. We talked about when we talked about Little Women. Where 
where one of the big knocks on this movie, and I don't think it's a fair knock, and I'm sure we'll, we'll maybe talk about it later on, but one of the big knocks against this at the time was that it's a very writerly movie. It's not really particularly well directed. It doesn't have any of those shots that really draw attention to themselves. And so you look at something like, say, Little Women, which again comes out in 2019, you know, the same year that Us comes out, and you have this idea of, no, that is a much more painterly movie. That is a movie that is much more deliberate in its shots and its compositions. It's much more careful in putting together its frames and its iconography. It's much more kind of, again, designed to have more memorable uh, visual imagery than I think that Lady Bird does and that sort of stuff as well. And then you have the third movie. And to be fair, Peel kind of beats uh, Gerwig to the punch here. But I think that you can look at something like Nope and you can look at something like Barbie as two sides of the same coin where these are yeah. directors who began as kind of independent filmmakers having come from smaller movements now making these big bold blockbuster claims where Nope, you know, Barbie is an IP, Nope is not an IP, but Nope is also very much Peel putting down his marker and saying I want to be our generation Spielberg. I don't want to be the biggest African-American director filmmaker working. I want to be one of the biggest studio filmmakers working. And here is my answer to Jaws. And here is my answer to Close Encounters. And just take it or leave it. And Barbie really feels like it's doing kind of the same thing for Gerwig. And and there is also, you know, there's a larger context of Hollywood itself going through a change. 2017, as we point out, the year of, you know, we've talked about it before, it's the year of Me Too. It's the year where we're having these conversations about female directors, where women are finally getting chances that they were long denied systemically in Hollywood. And to be clear, the matter obviously isn't solved. We have not solved sexism. We have not solved misogyny. We've not solved racism. But things were getting a little better. Things were improving, however slowly, however deliberately, not fast enough. I, yeah. I mean, I think it's worth noting that like 2017 was the same year that you had. I think with sorry, with stuff like Nope, um, for Jordan Peele to do that, it doesn't say like you know, hey, I can do this too. It says I can do this better. I can do this <laughs> better. Know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which well, or at least that's my opinion. I was, I was like, why, why aren't there more movies like this? Like that? I wasn't kind of like, oh, it's great that they gave Jordan Peele like this opportunity. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> this is incredible. Um, no, no, I yeah. Nope was my second favorite movie of last year. I think it ranked above the Spielberg movie from last year for me to be clear. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's just what I'm saying is 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 that like, you know, those those kind of giving chances to to people like like Jordan Peele, it's it's very rewarding. Well, it's it's not chances, it's earned. Like the, Yeah, yeah. Like you 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 get better movies. Like to be clear, Lady Bird made 8 times its budget. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh Nope made, you know, Nope made twice its budget, us made four or five times its budget, all that sort of stuff. Like so it's yeah, and when I say giving chances to, I, they're earned chances to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. they're not like at, Hollywood studios are not in the charity business to be clear. But I, like it is it is worth noting that like again 2017 is the same year that you have like movies like for example like Wonder Woman. Um, you have like you have a Selma by Ava DuVernay, for example. I think you have was that the year of High Life with Claire Denis, um, the Robert Pattinson space movie. Was that that year or was that later? That was probably it later. Maybe slightly later. I think. I've been slightly later. Was Books Booksmart was around then as well, which would have been the first film. Booksmart was twenty nineteen. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of years after Olivia Wilde's first film. 
Well, I think that, yeah, well, I think that, like, Lady Bird, as you said, you kind of mentioned the trailblazingness of this, where it's, like, Greta Gerwig looking at Claire Denis and saying, I can make my own movie. And you have here people looking at Lady Bird, and it becomes a template for movies like and it, some of them even star the same actors like beanie Fieldstein doing like you mentioned um obviously book smart but like how to build a girl a couple of years later the caitlin Moran biopic mm-hmm. like you have this idea like even more recently you have are you there god it's me margaret as well like i think you you mentioned the idea that like lady bird felt rare at the time and arguably still does as a movie about you jokingly said being a girl in uh, like Cork going to a Catholic school, but being a girl and being the center of a coming of age story where like we talked like on the IMDb 250 is saturated with stories of young men coming of age. Again, we mentioned Shawshank. Yeah. Sorry, we mentioned uh, Stand By Me. We mentioned Stand like Back to the Future, um, Dead Poets Society, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Lady Bird. It feels like Lady Bird kind of opened the door and made it more accessible to have like these stories, but about women. Yeah, like it felt kind of, it always feels radical and it felt radical to see a story about about this kind of teenage girl coming of age on screen in such a way from like, you know, such a, such a great young director, someone who's kind of of the same, who, who is of the same um, era as me. And it just highlighted, like you're saying there, the kind of dearth of them that, you know, when, when I was growing up and was, was a teenager, it was all kind of boy stories that you're seeing, which is, which is great. And so many amazing movies are made based on those stories. But there is something radical about seeing yourself in some sense reflected on screen. Um, and there's plenty of people who don't see themselves still reflected um, um, in cinema. But I, I think, yeah, it definitely opened the door for films like Booksmart. And, you know, like you're saying there about Hollywood, you know, Hollywood isn't a very risky place. If we're talking about, you know, making movies within the system and things have to be proven. And so you need somebody who gets a chance to do something a bit different. And then everybody realizes, oh, teenage girl films actually make money so we can make more of those. So she helped to, I suppose, break break ground um in that way and particularly so because i think the film because the film is set in 2002 it was such a recent coming of age film as well she's not like going back to the 60s or 70s or anything you know she's really telling a, a very contemporary coming of age story um even though lady bird herself is a little bit kind of sheltered in some ways but you know a lot of teenagers are um so i think for me anyway and i think that's why myself and my friends all really enjoyed it because we connect with that and particularly which we'll probably get into later the mother daughter relationship being a kind of a fractious relationship but a very believable one that was quite radical I felt particularly when I rewatched it before this podcast I thought wow that I haven't seen that really I definitely hadn't seen a lot of that up to that point in similar similar films yeah I think we've mentioned on the 250 the default is the father-son relationship if you want a movie to get on the list that we cover you just make put in some dad stuff sorry Connor. yeah <laughs> oh, no yeah uh, what, what it has I mean before that, you had films like Clueless and, and Mean Girls and those kind of kind of uh, heightened comedies or heightened worlds, whereas this has a specificity uh, which makes it universal. You know, that classic thing, if you if you go in, you're specific about a particular time and place and a particular reality and make it real, then it becomes universal because we've all the human experience is is going to be there somewhere. And I think that's that was the that's the radical difference that it has from previous films. Um, that it's a like you say it's it's a girl and, and her mother but it's a female specificity whereas before we've only ever seen that uh, with boys and also they're not a rich family they're always gonna say they're not a rich family if you look at something like clueless you know it's obviously set in in bel, in bel- air and is a very better isn't it yeah, yeah um 
we're the right area. Um, yeah. You know, set a very rich part of California. Um, you know, you're used to seeing a lot of, um, I felt anyway, growing up looking at uh, shows and stuff about girls, American girls in particular, they always had a lot of money and lived in big houses. Um, but this this is very much about a, a, a family that is kind of not poor, but like struggling within probably like formerly middle class family, um, working class family. So that's that felt kind of fresh in a in a contemporary way too, in, in a sense. But when I was growing up, I'm a bit older, but when I was growing up, even the poor people on American television programs had massive bedrooms and en suites. <laughs> You're going, Roseanne, poor, yeah. we don't even have that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Like sing, single income families like The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like... Two sitting rooms, uh, four bedrooms, two cars, a kitchen, a garage, a big house. I mean, like it, it's gotten to the point where like I think even The Atlantic, The Simpsons have been running so long that like The Atlantic had to write an article explaining how improbable it was that Homer could afford a home like this. Mm. And I think even like the 33rd season finale, Poor House Rock, has like special guest star Hugh Jackman show up and explain through musical numbers why Bart will never be able to afford the life that like he just seemingly saw for granted every week with Homer. Like the Home Alone mansion. Like remember watching Home Alone and you'd be like, how do they live in a house that size? It's because they're architects. It's it's like the architects in, um, what's his name, John Hughes movies always have these like gigantic like... Um, expensive houses. That's where they put the mirrors, isn't it? That's, is that what yeah. it is? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do also, like, we'll, we'll talk maybe more specifically about, like, the working classness or the, the kind of the, the creeping kind of, like, contracted middle classness of it when we get into the spoiler zone. But I, d- I do also wonder if part of that is Gerwig trying to shake off the Mumblecore reputation where one of the big criticisms of Mumblecore as a movement was that this was a film movement that was based around people who could afford to like live the basically white very fairly well-off students who could afford to study and live in new york city and make movies about how difficult their relationships were in some vague existential way um and this was around about say you know the the mid to late 2000s this was around the time people were becoming more cognizant of issues around like access to like cinema access to as Eva pointed out telling these kinds of stories um and one of the big criticisms of mumblecore is that it is a very white movement and it's a very upper class movement because even if you are spending only five thousand dollars to make a student film over a weekend flying your cast crew to chicago you're still probably calling in favors from people who are lending you expensive digital cameras to do it um, and i do wonder if the middle classness of Lady Bird feels like a thoughtful response to that where that's Gerwig drawing a line between herself and the movement in a way that is you know not drawing attention to itself but feels like a a reading of the room perhaps um just very quickly in terms of the I mean oh sorry I'll say the uh Connor uh, uh Connor's point about specificity is very good and and I, I I think as well like the 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 mention of kind of Beverly Hills that were or or Bel Air where we're used to kind of seeing, uh, uh, uh those kind of settings that Sacramento is very kind of specific. Yeah. Yeah. And um yeah I think the um I I I'd agree with what we said about like how that's. Kind of there, there is something very um, kind of uh, 
personalizing in that in in that it kind of comes back to you more even though it's 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 something that you're not used to kind of seeing i guess and there's that quote from I was gonna say there's that there's that quote from Joan Didion at the start of the film about like if you ever thought basically paraphrasing her about you know if you ever think of California, California hedonism. You think of hedonism go go to Sacramento which is where <laughs> Greta Gerwig's from and that idea that Sacramento is actually quite a boring place and you know Didion being the icon that she was um, you know um, could really see a place for what it was so like her cutting comment commentary on the place she was from um, was very true and I I think that there's something really appealing about the fact that the film is about a character who constantly wants more than what she has and is finding it really hard to get there. So like she's in Sacramento to an Irish person that seems really exotic to her. She's in this boring town, wants to go east or, you know, wants to go somewhere and she's yearning for that the whole way through the film. And like teenagers, we always want more than what they have. And I, th- I think that's just captured so well. And I think you're right about like, even though Sacramento is very, very specific, it can really... Uh, resonate with you even if you're from like a small town in Ireland um just and to to Connor's point about the difference between this and say movies like say uh Mean Girls and like Clueless I know that obviously you know Clueless is part of the 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 work of Amy Heckerling I know that we associate like Tina Fey as the auteur of Mean Girls but like Lady Bird is the one of the first times I remember a movie like this having that sense of authorship for a female character from a female director like being a coming of age story that is specifically being sold as the vision of a female filmmaker who is a talent to watch in the way that you know we talk about like we talk about Baumbach or we talk about Woody Allen or we talk about you know these other great figures in American independent cinema who write these things that are autobiographical now that is a huge asterisk i want to put the huge asterisk next to autobiographical we'll talk about that in the spoiler zone that is one of the interesting aspects of this movie i think that to unpack and explore um all right in terms of just basic production and setup gerwig apparently began working on this movie around about 2013 2014 The original draft of the script ended up being 350 pages long because it contained all of her ideas. She described it as just a collection of scenes, uh, which she then cut down to the bone. Uh, She settled on the casting of Saoirse Ronan at the 2015 Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, They were each promoting their own movies at that time. I believe it was um, Saoirse Ronan was promoting the former Leaving Cert film Brooklyn. Um, and I believe Gerwig was was promoting a film that she was appearing in as well, rather than one that she'd written or one that she'd produced. Um, they read the script together in a hotel room. And apparently, according to Gerwig, by the second page, she knew that she had found her Lady Burger, Christine McPherson. Um, and apparently one of the reasons that the movie took so long to get made was because... Um, because Ronan had a busy schedule and because she wasn't available immediately, which is one of the interesting things about this movie is that it was actually shot listed more than a year before it was actually before anybody stepped in front of a camera. Um, basically, Gerwig sat down with the cinematographer and said, shot for shot, here's what the movie's going to be more than a year before anybody actually showed up on set, which is something I think we should talk a little bit about the technical aspects of the film we get to the spore zone because I do think there's a tendency to dismiss Gerwig's work as a director by focusing on her as a writer uh, when it comes to this movie. All right, then. So three questions to get us started before we jump into the spoiler zone. So, Connor, do you think Ladybird belongs on the Leaving Cert English curriculum? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I personally, it's not it's not for me, but I can see it's a fantastic film. It's beautifully made. And I knew when I saw it. So, like I said, my wife and daughter went to see it 
and then I think I bought it on DVD. Um, I don't think I went to see it. And I knew when I watched it that this would end up, it's the perfect Leaving Cert film. It ticks so many boxes, um, has everything that you need in a classroom. Which is probably why I won't teach it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a very. It's a. It's the only real coming of age movie on there, apart from Grand Budapest Hotel. Maybe at a push, right? It, it's the it's, most it's coming of age. Yeah. It's uh, it takes the boxes because one, it's really well made. Okay, it's made by an artist, so it's really well made. So you got the. It's written well, so to speak. It's thematically there's lots going on, but it has the coming of age aspect to it. it has a and and then in in in. in the way the lists are made these days and over the last seven, five or six years, it has a female lead and it's directed by a woman. So it ticks all those boxes that, that you need. Um, but for me, it's just the first couple um, are, are the important ones in terms of um, in terms of teaching, it, I suppose. But I knew straight away. I, I just it's it, it was as clear as day. And as, as you said, Sir Ronan, years ago, they used to have a, always had a Shakespeare adaptation film on, on there. And Sir Ronan has, has taken over from Shakespeare. In those films. I, I do love the idea that for like eight years, there was just one person in the back of the room banging their shoe on the table going, John Landis is trading places. That's, <laughs> Eddie Murphy. The kids need to know about Eddie Murphy. Um so, Aoife, what about yourself? Do you think Lady Bird belongs on the Leaving Cert English curriculum? Yeah, like, um, I definitely would agree with Connor because I think that for all the all the reasons he said and all the re- reasons we've discussed, it stands out, you know, it's not a film that's kind of um, derivative, you know? So it's not like you have many other options if you're looking for a film about the coming of age of a young woman. But I think there are other themes in it as well that I think young people will would find very interesting or at least would find challenging or would be able to tease apart so there is you know there is the you know leaving school aspect of it so they'll you know kind of resonate with that but also the motherhood um or the relationship with the mother the best friend relationship the really two relationships with the two guys and how different they are too um I think there's just a lot in it that as a as a teenager you can unpack and then there's probably a lot of um cinematic references in there too in terms of text text that Gurig was thinking of either you know visual or um actual text that that you could refer back to I think as a teacher I'd imagine when when teaching it and I also just think it, we'll get into the spoiler zone I think it's really interestingly like paced and edited and yeah. I think that's that makes it stand out to me compared to other other maybe movies of its ilk so yeah i i would have been very happy if i was a student and this was on the leaving search yeah we should shout out nicholas howe is the editor on on the film uh did a tremendous job uh we'll maybe talk about some of that in the spoiler zone but he was not present during the shooting he was only in new york so they went off to california shot the movie and then showed up in the ending bay with all the footage and he said he said himself he had no he was looking at it from a very distant perspective which is apparently what gerwig wanted and we'll, we'll talk maybe about that when we get to the spoiler zone andrew what about yourself do you think that yeah, Lady Bird? Yeah, no, I, I, I'd agree. I, I, I think it, 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 it has those teenage or kind of young adult occupations of one's relationship, like ambivalent relationship with one's family, because it's at a time when you're you're um, uh, separating from them and becoming your own person. It's also the the, the development of your kind of. Um, nascent sexuality and uh, first kind of relationships and your your kind of journey to becoming yourself and finding out what that person is going to be and the frustration of that and also could it, the, 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 the 
the angst and the, the impotence as in like the, the powerlessness of it which which i think it gets across what if this is the best version of myself exactly yeah yeah but also feeling like you you're you're kind of having to live under somebody else's roof and and when 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 you're trying to define who you are and for myself i would say yes i mean i think that like the it it is a no-brainer that there should be a coming of age movie on there. If you're putting a coming of age movie on there, you already have a bunch of classics of American cinema. It'd probably be something modern. Uh it's nice to get a perspective that isn't just a bunch of angsty teenage boys. I think Lady Bird fits that as well. I think it is an extraordinarily well-made film. I think it is saying things. I think it exists in a very interesting cultural context. And I think that you probably have a lot to write about or discuss if you're going to talk about it. I think it is a deep text uh with layers to it, which is Always very handy when you're going into an exam and have to talk about it. Um, all right then, and Connor, if Lady Bird wasn't on the Leaving Cert curriculum, do you think you would come back to it? Uh, no, I don't think I would have. I saw it the once and I'd go, that's lovely, that's nice. And uh, I probably wouldn't have given it a second thought. I might have paused in it as you're flicking through the channels. I'm old enough that I still do that, still flick around. But I don't think I would have stayed in it for more than 10 minutes. Yeah. And Aoife, if this wasn't on the Leaving Cert curriculum, would you come back to it? Yeah, I know that's probably uh, spoilers by everything I've said up to now. But, you know, when I when I watched it back this week, I did wonder what I would think of it, you know, because I thought maybe at the time I just really enjoyed it and it just kind of it, it wouldn't resonate with me as much the you know third or fourth time watching it. But it still really did. Um, it gave me that lovely little warm feeling when you see a, a movie that you're just really kind of emotionally you really emotionally connect with. So for me, it definitely is one that I would I would, you know, watch again. I, it's kind of almost a little bit of a I can see it being a comfort film for people like, you know, and I feel like it's kind of one that mums and daughters would love to watch together. I, I kept thinking my mum would actually love to watch this with me. So, yeah. And do you prefer this to Little Women? Because you've, you've covered both episodes, sorry, both movies on the podcast. Do you have a preference for either of them? And you can say nights and weekends if you want to throw a complete curveball. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I prefer this to Little Women. Just because it's fresher and it's new, you know, and I, I loved Little Women as a book when I was a kid. So I feel like I already had that connection with with it in that kind of sense you know and I really loved I really loved a version of Little Women and I think I argued for it to be on the on in, in the 250 uh list you know whereas I, I, you'll be asking us about this film in a minute I won't spoil my <laughs> oh no 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 they, they, we've changed the questions a different it's a different set of questions all right okay We're keeping things fresh you, you can't have students okay, preparing well, going into the exam um <laughs> that's very true that's very true but yeah I actually would think Little Women would deserve to be in the 250 more than at Lady Bird. is that controversial perhaps but yeah. Even though I prefer Lady Bird as well. <laughs> well, that that is why we split the two questions when we do the podcast. Normally, Andrew's always like, "Why do we split the two questions?" I'm like that is exactly why. But Andrew, if Lady Bird weren't, well, first of all, had you seen Lady Bird before? Um, actually, Andrew, I had, I had, had seen it, right. and um, I had enjoyed it. And would you come back to it ever if we weren't covering it on this for the season for the? the I research? like. I think I would have considered it. Yeah. Because if I was looking at kind of a list of movies and, and saw Lady Bird, I would be like, that's good. Let's put that in the maybe <laughs> pile. I think things that might have encouraged me to watch it again would include um, if I had a daughter, I'd probably want to watch this. And I'd want to watch Little Women. I think I'd want to watch Little Women anyway. 
Is that just because you want to be either Tracy Letts or Bob Odenkirk? That they're a goal for you? They're a dad goal? Well, they're, 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 yeah. There's it's, good dad representation in these movies. There's great dad representation. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, there often is in these young women coming of age stories. Like To Kill a Mockingbird, I guess, is the classic example. Where um, Atticus Finch is like the... the the ideal American embodiment. Yeah, yeah, it's the platonic ideal of <laughs> yeah. of dad, and I I think that gets referenced as well in in is it Vanilla Sky? I um, I like that now you're making it seem like Joe Marsh has like Saul Goodman as a father by comparison, like just on the grand <laughs> scale of like movie lawyer dads. Um, well, of course, Saul Goodman is a departure for <laughs> Bob Odenkirk. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I think he, he's like, you know, somebody who's always trying to kind of uh, uh, push that, uh, push through different barriers and do something different. And besides, he looks enough like Kevin Costner. Um, <laughs> uh, and and for myself then uh, probably yeah I mean like I would have rewatched this anyway around this time uh, because obviously there's a new Greta Gerwig movie coming out so I watched all of her movies um, and yeah, <laughs> of I, course of course I did um, for my sins I I will say I do not like mumblecore I I do not care for mumblecore as an aesthetic um, and yeah nights and weekends is, so you is don't like Nolan hi <laughs> oh well played Andrew well played. <laughs> Core isn't quite the same thing. Um, yeah, it's like uh, the Venn diagram of movies that you need subtitles for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, the the, pro- the, pro- the problem with Mumblecore isn't that you can't hear them; it's that they won't stop talking. Um, it's like it's like being trapped in the worst college party you were ever at, but they just won't stop. You can't go outside because you put the movie on. Mumble- Mumblecore happened. What was? What did, when did you say it was like late two thousands? So that's when I was, uh, small kids had to pick and choose when I went to the movies. I think I saw one of them and said, no, never again. Not wasting my, (laughs) wasting my my card, my cinema card on this nonsense. (laughs) So I know very little about them. Conceptually, I am very happy for them. It's low budget filmmaking. It's people pursuing their dreams. It's people working together to make something that they care passionately about. I think that is fantastic. And I support them wholeheartedly in that endeavor. I just do not ever want to have to watch one of them. <laughs> what? Like, why, why is everything mumbles uh, mumbled now? Or, like, not everything. But why is that a trend in terms of there, there's also the there's that genre of mumble rap? Uh, well, it's it's because it's meant to be improvisational. That that's the thing. Like the thing, the Gerwig's first writing credits we mentioned were on these movies because they're heavily improvised. So you get a lot of people who are speaking just randomly and casually. The microphones aren't like high quality. The dialogue isn't properly enunciated. The idea with Mumblecore was that it's just people are are kind of like acting like normal people. And my issue with Mumblecore is that it's not. It's not. It's not that at all. It it's theater kids trying naturalism. It's like. And I love theatre kids and I love naturalism, but like theatre kids trying to do naturalism, just for me, it, it grates a little bit, but that's just my, my take on it. But yeah, the mumbleness is the because... same influence on mumble rap. Then. <laughs> I don't know about mumble <laughs> like... rap. I, I, you're, you're, I, this is outside my comfort zone, Andrew. I know one thing and that is movies. Um... <laughs> uh, and maybe if there were a movie about mumble rap, Maybe we can cover a movie at Mumble Rap and I'll be able to come with you, come to you with like facts. Yeah. 
and be like, here's my research for the week. I will retain none of this. And yeah, for myself, yes. Yeah, so I, I would come back to it. I liked it a lot more. I liked it more now than I did in 2017. I liked it more in the context of having a body of work from Gerwig. Um, I, yeah, I find it intensely charming. I, I think it's really, really good. And then final question, Connor, if listeners have not already seen Lady Bird, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. definitely. It's well worth seeing. And um, don't be listening to me and my my slight <laughs> apathy a little bit to our listen to listen to Eva <laughs> in that respect. Definitely watch it. I love when people say that. <laughs> and th- thank you for setting up that segue, Connor. Eva, would you recommend that listeners? I think people should listen to Connor and. <laughs> And listen to me. I watch um, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Listen to you. Uh, yeah, because it's, you know what? It's lovely and heartwarming. And, you know, we need we need films like that, especially in times like these where it feels like the world's about to implode at any second. I, I think sometimes you just need a movie that feels like a little bit of a hug. And even though this has got sad and tough bits in it, it still feels very gentle and heartwarming. So, yeah. And Andrew. Yes, let her speak. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. The um, it 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 is quite a good natured film. I think there 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 there's very little kind of nastiness in it. I think it's a movie that likes its characters. Yes. Yeah. Even like when it even, maybe shouldn't. Um. Well, yeah. They're like like there 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 are characters who are kind of the worst, but it yeah. doesn't it it they, like. It doesn't really go after them, like and 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 I I, I find this kind of refreshing, actually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is a gentleness to it. Um, yeah. Again, it's it's a very California movie. Like that is we'll, we'll mm-hmm. talk in the spoiler zone about like Gerwig's. Is this isn't it an autobiographical film? Because there's a lot of push and pull on that. Uh, but the big difference, one of the big differences from Gerwig, is that she never disliked Sacramento. Even as a teenager growing up. Now, she did obviously go to New York to study and got swept up in the Mumblecore movement. But even as a teenager, she was like, yeah, Sacramento is like the best place in the world. And there is that genuine affection for it where like she comes back. If you look at press for Lady Bird, an extraordinary amount of that is the Sacramento Bee doing interviews and features and articles by Greta Gerwig, who is presumably at the same time fending off requests from like New Yorker, the New York magazine, Intelligencer, The Atlantic and all these national publications. Just like, no, I want to talk about that donut store that used to be on Main Street. Isn't that awesome? It's like there is a real genuine love and affection, I think, for Sacramento. And that that vibe, I think, is that is that niceness that I think Aoife and Andrew kind of mentioned there. So, yeah, I, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. With that in mind, we will enter... The exam hall. You may now watch the movie if you've not yet done so. The podcast is about to start. You have less than three hours to listen to this broad conversation, including tangents. The best of luck. All right. So, Aoife, what is Ladybird about for you? Ladybird is the story of Christine, also known as Ladybird, a teenage girl who is in her last year of high school and she's going through that like experience that we all go through where you're just about to kind of break free, kind of like what Andrew was talking about earlier, where you're properly like about to separate from the family, you know, leave the nest. Um, and it's about that last year in school for her and her relationship with 
her mum, who's played by Laurie Metcalf. Saoirse Ronan plays Lady Bird. Um, and her mum, Laura Metcalf, and her dad is played by Tracy Letts, who is a very famous playwright as well, well as an actor. Um, and it's really about following her story as she kind of grows up a bit. You know, it's that classic coming of age thing where she has to confront her own flaws, um, how she can be a bad friend, a bad daughter, but while she's also trying to pursue her aim of leaving Sacramento and what I really loved is she wants to leave Sacramento because she's really idealized you know creators and writers and believes that she goes east she will be somewhere where she can just be in the culture and create and not in boring Sacramento where she has grown up um but she discovers Sacramento is still actually quite an interesting place of course by by the end of it so yeah it's, it's really a film about 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 going for what you want as well she, you know she she behind her mum's back makes decisions and does things to try and further her her life even though she doesn't really know a lot about how to be an adult she has to learn to be a little bit of an adult during during the film and she goes to which is interesting a co-ed catholic school which i think will kind of resonate with a lot of people of our generations um living in ireland and that brings a little edge to the film as well i think so yeah it's really a film about breaking free, finding yourself and also being a bit of a pain in the ass as well too. But also, also I think belonging. It's a, it's a movie I think very much about the idea of community as well. Like the, the, it's, there's this interesting tension where mm. Lady Bird is this rugged individualist where she's all about her. She has the big shouting match uh, with Julie where she's like, Julie's like, you can't do anything if you're not the center of attention where yeah. she's frustrated at being put in the chorus uh, in the Sondheim musical, Merrily We Go Along. She's frustrated at being the Tempest in The Tempest despite the fact it's the titular role. Um, and basically... <laughs> She's, she's so good but like the idea that like she goes away and it's only when she goes away the, like the closing moments of the film and i guess this is something to talk about you mentioned the catholicism of the movie but she goes away she goes to parties according to gerwig one of the genesis um points for this movie was that bit at the end where she's at the party with i think it's dave is his name or whatever it is and he says where are you from and she says sacramento and he says what where and she goes oh san francisco and i think gerwig describes that as like a a moment where the movie really clicked for her, where it's that little lie you tell at a party in New York to make yourself seem 10% cooler to somebody that you're never going to see again and how that was kind of for her an inspiration. But she goes, she gets drunk. She sees the, the kid with the eye patch and she, she goes to church after leaving Catholic school, after spending a lot of her time in Catholic school kind of rebelling. I mean, there's that conversation with the with the nun, which I love, which is like, uh, the nun's like, oh, we have a theater program. They put on a fall musical and a spring play, and it's very, very good. And it's like, why don't I know about that? And the nun's response is, maybe you haven't been an active participant in the social life of this institution. <laughs> but I like the idea that Lady Bird goes to New York, which is one of these most, the most individualist city outside of maybe L.A. in America. And she immediately goes to a church and she sings in a choir. And that kind of connects her to something spiritual she steps outside the church picks up the phone and rings and leaves a message to her parents and talks to them in a way that she wasn't able to before i find that that journey that she goes on from being that rugged individualist person who where everything is all about her needs and her wants to kind of becoming part of something larger i think that's a really interesting journey for a movie like this that idea you have to separate to actually step away and then see where you've come from. So she only really appreciates elements of her previous life when she's no longer 
living that life. But that doesn't mean she should have stayed there. It means that it was right for her to be that be that individual and leave. And like, like I, I would basically be kind of an atheist. I wouldn't have any practice any religion at all. But I can see how when you grew up in that community how returning to somewhere like a church even if you're not a believer can give you what you're talking about there that sense of belonging and that like you know by having that piece at the end of the scene at the end of the film it's almost like the epiphany that you get like you know in James in James Joyce's um short stories where the person realizes something and that kind of casts a new light on everything afterwards so she has this like literal epiphany probably about her belonging to her previous home while she's in the church of all places um which makes sense of course um and i really like that it's like a classic kind of trope but it's really it's really nicely done yeah i mean she gerwig is not a catholic but she did go to catholic school she went to saint francis uh, for example in sacramento and she obviously they were down the road from a boys school that was run by jesuits as well like so she's talked about how that was a huge influence on her even though she isn't a practicing catholic even though she doesn't believe and a large part of what she wanted to do with the movie was she wanted to steer away from the idea of making fun like there's there's that line there's an interview with her with America magazine uh, which is like the premier catholic magazine so maybe know your audience kind of interview but she says look there's plenty of stuff to make a joke out of in catholic schools but what if he didn't what if you took it seriously and showed all the things that were beautiful about it what the Jesuits were trying to teach us, I think, and the nuns as well, is that there are all kinds of ways of serving gods. There's there's a line uh, in an interview that she did with the Washington Post where she says, like, in other movies that I've written and in this one, I always have, and I do think, honestly, it reflects my four years of theology, I always have some religious thread underneath that people can pick up on or not pick up on. I don't need them to, but it helps me as an organizing principle, because even if you don't believe in the stories, they're very old stories and they do speak really deeply to people and their psychologies and how we deal with life. For example, when she denies he's from Sacramento, that was, in my mind, sort of when the apostles deny Jesus and say, I don't know that man. I have no idea who he is. And they say they won't, and they do, because you would. And also you're forgiven. I think that some of those themes that I like having in there, it's not the text, but it's the subtext. I think those stories are very potent in talking about the human condition and human impulses that sometimes aren't as noble as we'd like them to be. And that doesn't make you unworthy. That makes you human, which is kind of interesting. It's it's that kind of classical illusion that kind of connects something very contemporary to, to something very ancient, like the way Robocop <laughs> is an Easter story. An Easter story. Got in there early, Andrew. I appreciate it. Robocop reference. <laughs> Rising of Christ. It is an American Christ story. Wasn't that Paul Verhoeven's wife's observation about Robocop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's an American Christ story. Has he story. thrown in the waste paper basket? And she was <laughs> like, no, this is... This Don't is... you see it's an American Jesus story? <laughs> yeah. the, the, the ending for me is actually one of the reasons why I'm, I'm a little bit cool in it. Because the film is mainly about the absolute narcissism of being a teenager. <laughs> where you don't, you really don't care. It's all about you. The whole world revolves around you. And in order for her to overcome that, she has to realize that she's actually part of the community, like you say. And at the end, she's ringing and she's saying about the moment about driving around Sacramento and the feeling of being at home in Sacramento. And we have that, those cuts where she's, you know, facing the same way as the mother in the car. And it's got one, is it the mother, is it the, is it the daughter? Yeah. And that for me, I, I felt, no. No, let her keep a certain amount of anarchy. Let her let her go. And, you know, 
turn her back on Sacramento if she wants to turn her back at Sacramento. <laughs> Don't show me her turning into her mother at the end of the film, please. <laughs> I, I, that, I was going, that, it's, it's just the conformity and the, the, the kind of almost, it's, it's a way of an indie movie to do the classic Hollywood ending where they all end up at home happy and at the same time not have the classic Hollywood. Yeah. said, so, no, you, that, that, that was what, well, I've, I have another reason about her, her, her first boyfriend is another, you know, touch point for me. But, <laughs> <laughs> Those two, th- that's the, her first boyfriend, the second boyfriend, no notes. Kyle, oh, floppy no hair, notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, floppy hair is all in her. Kyle, Kyle is the worst. <laughs> Kyle is the worst. Floppy hair is all in her. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Connor, as a fellow floppy haired individual, you do obviously have some sympathy for Kyle. We will acknowledge that. Sorry, Andrew, you look Kyle, such a- yeah, no, Kyle is insufferable, but they, they <laughs> like the the thing about her, like, you, you can't. You can't yearn for the present. That the tension always has to be either where you want to be or where you've just been, mm. you know. And and that's she she looks back on Sacramento because you know she's left there. She's not there anymore. And then and that she looks forward to New York because she hasn't been there yet, and and she wants to leave this kind of like behind, and that she can't kind of like guess. Um, somewhere different without leaving somewhere somewhere behind and that that she like uh, if she hadn't kind of uh, felt any sort of loss then you'd kind of like question whether there was something kind of wrong with her and they, that she can be very self-centered but but that she needs angst you know that, that, that like a coming of age story you can't have her kind of arrive there and be like, "Finally, you know, I've made it." Okay. Imagine if they okay. imagine no. if the film ended up with her vomiting at the party. That was and then cut to black. <laughs> <laughs> that I'd probably go, "Yeah, that's a good movie." <laughs> that would be that we got. I wondered if like Gerwig just didn't want it to end with the mom and the daughter, you know, estranged. You know that like I, that would be a totally valid way to end the the movie completely, like with them not properly kind of connecting um but i felt like she kind of really wanted by the end them to have like a new step a new way forward with their relationship and that's why you know when ladybird rings she says dad this message is mostly for mum you know that idea that she's finally kind of speaking to her mother and maybe when and when she's talking to her mom about driving through sacramento which we see which kind of echoes what we saw at the start with the mom driving through sacramento and obviously intercuts shots of the mum doing it at the end too um that idea that she's finally kind of seeing things through her mum's eyes and like the whole way through her mum is being like really tough on her and that is that's obviously hard to watch but it's not that unusual for those kind of relationships to be like that so I felt like Gerwig couldn't leave them in a bad place you know she kind of wanted them to have a bit of hope and which is why you got that positive ending has she looked at things from both sides now? <laughs> what I did like about the ending, though, is that I learned to drive very late because uh, I used to cycle to school and then I cycled to work, et cetera, et cetera. I got public transport. So I only started to learn to drive when I moved down here to West Cork and I had to. I was in my mid-30s. But as soon as you start driving, so I remember learning to drive very clearly and the terror, but also uh, the feeling of ownership once you get it. 
you know, freedom. It's the, the, the freedom, but also of ownership of the roads and you recognize places and things become familiar as you do the same drive again and again and again. Whereas when you're a passenger, you're not kind of paying as much attention. You're a little bit distracted. Uh, these days, you might be you know, listening to music, looking out the window, but you're not paying attention. But when you're driving, you're paying attention and mm. it's your world and that is your location to remember, etc. And so that that whole idea at the end when she connects through the driving through Sacramento. I found that very, that, that, for me, that was very, that was a very real thing, something that I could uh, understand and empathize with as well. Also, it literally takes her from being a passenger in her life to taking the wheel in her life, which, which I hadn't thought about. So yeah, you're right, like that. And it doesn't feel like too labored a metaphor. It's actually kind of nice. Yeah, it become, it, it does, it does become a better kind of a container for your memories when you're driving, I think Connor is on to something. That they they it, you know, walking, um, from one place to another, or driving from one place to another, or any kind of mode where you're kind of in charge, um, that's where you kind of like create your mind palace, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um. Two two quick things there on on the the Gerwigness and the driving. The first one is a boring technical point, um, which is the kind of thing that I love, which is the argument about Gerwig whether or not she was quote unquote a great director. There was a lot of debate over her nomination for direction of Lady Bird from a lot of people who felt that it wasn't earned or justified or whatever. Um, the juxtaposition of the mother and daughter in the seats of the car is something that could only have happened through careful shot planning. Um, it's something that happened as a result of making the shot list for the movie uh, with, is it Levy is the name of the guy, the cinematographer, like a year before you go in there, Sam Levy is the name of the cinematographer. So there is like, it's a very obvious example of the movie's craft where she sat down and she decided when she was shooting this indie movie that it was going to be, that was the cut that was going to be at the end and that's why it was going to be that way and that's why those shots were going to be set up that way from the outset which is a big difference between how you make a movie like this and how you make a mumblecore movie um darren says um and that gets to the second point which is i think the contradiction that connor notes there which is and i guess this is this is maybe my read on the contradiction of the gerwig thing that kind of Aoife was talking about where the perception of Gerwig as this kind of indie darling versus the studio director that she wants to be, um, or the big studio director she wants to be, where you look at Lady Bird and it is very specific. There's an incredible specificity to it. Um, she's talked and said, look, a lot of... It's semi-autobiographical is how she describes it. But when you read interviews with her, it becomes very, very clear very quickly that this is entirely made up and that Lady Bird is the exact opposite of her. Lady Bird is not a surrogate for Gerwig. Gerwig was never like Lady Bird when she was a child. And that is, to be clear, good. It's good that you're able to imagine a character whole cloth. It's not a criticism of the movie, but it is something that we inherit from how we talk about movies like this, when we think about independent cinema, when we think about the language of independent cinema, where you have movies like the Woody Allen movies are a great example, where Woody Allen just plays Woody Allen in every Woody Allen movie. And then he starts casting other people as Woody Allen, which is very disconcerting. Uh, but even things like John Cassavetes and Mumblecore, where it's all improvised and it's all coming from the idea of an authentic lived experience, where we look at these things and we tend to see them as biographical works. I mean, 
again, I, I hate that we keep dragging Gerwig's partner bound back into it, but he is a creative partner as much as a personal partner. Something like Marriage Story, where you cannot watch Marriage Story, a bound back film, without understanding that it is in large part about his divorce. It is about his personal experience of living through that, and the character played by Adam Driver is in many ways, at least in terms of what actually happened, a surrogate for Baumbach in that. So when you approach a movie like Lady Bird and you treat it as an auteurist work, the assumption is that Lady Bird is meant to be a stand-in for Gerwig, but by Gerwig's account, she really isn't. Gerwig was a good girl in school. She got good grades. She conformed. She never rebelled. She never dyed her hair. She participated in group activities. She was well-loved and well-liked. She never really wanted to leave Sacramento. She always saw herself coming back to it. Um, Even the relationship with the mother, where she says, like, look, the spine of this movie came from my relationship to my mother. Um, But then she also says, by the way, the mother is nothing like my mother, to be absolutely clear. She's a completely different person. And in fact... Gerwig's mother, when she was invited to the premiere of Lady Bird, apparently her one-line review to her daughter was, Greta, you wish I had given you the silent treatment. <laughs> to give a sense of like how <laughs> fundamentally different the two of them are. Um, so there is that sense of, like, I think we assume that Gerwig is like Lady Bird, and therefore, because Lady Bird is like these male insert characters who we associate with populating indie cinema, we therefore reverse engineer the idea that Gerwig is like the male directors of independent cinema that we mentioned there when she's not really. And I think that like, I think Connor's onto something when he describes it as a very Hollywood ending where Gerwig is, I think very cannily aware of the fact that she cannot leave that relationship between mother and daughter unresolved she cannot leave it on a bum note she cannot leave the audience walking out of the cinema feeling like that relationship between mother and daughter is irreparable uh damaged and broken i think i think that's a tension within the movie and i think it's i think it's a good tension i think it speaks to gerwig as more than a stereotype of an indie filmmaker but i do think it's it's something that is interesting to unpack i think there's something similar in little women as well where little women is this story ostensibly about how women deserve to have stories told about them and how it's important for joe to write stories that like tell the real lived experience of women but it's really odd that it chooses to do that in a book that was written by a woman who only wrote that to make money and really wanted to write cool pirate stories uh, but couldn't do it because the system wouldn't support her. And it's kind of like, I feel like Gerwig is kind of like empathizes with that, where it's like, I really want to make a Narnia movie, but I have to make this prestige <laughs> little women movie first. Um, but little, I, I think but Lady Bird, it has the tropes of the classic uh, high school uh, film anyway. So it has the quirky best friend, even though Lady Bird is probably more quirky than the quirky best friend. It has the gay best friend, except she doesn't quite realize he's the gay best friend until after the first act, it has the popular girl that isn't as nice as she seems to be. So there's all these kind of tropes. The only trope it doesn't have is her falling for a boyfriend at the end. So there's no boy at the end that she goes off with, um, which is, is is the way it should be. You know, one of the best scenes is herself and her friend dancing at the prom and, and the looks that people are giving them. Um, it's, uh, it's fantastic uh, and very realistic as well. So it has all all the way through, it has these kind of the, the tropes and the classic Hollywood little bits. But um, what, what works, so 
that there, another little bit that maybe kind of grated for me on my third watch or something like when I started, oh, sure, that's the gay best friend. He's still there. Like, but what it does, it has to get this, the realism, especially with the mother-daughter. Now, I'm not going to say anything about my wife and my own daughter or my mum and my sisters, um, but it's very much a heightened version of something I have seen. Heightened, very heightened. Really, really <laughs> heightened. To be clear, to you be need clear. to stress that. I like, turned up yeah. to 11, 12, 14 or something like that from the reality. Well, it's, but yeah. it's, uh, that's... That's the center of it. It's the idea, I think, and uh, of like how mothers pass down their anxieties to their children about like their uh, status, but also like their bodies and uh, those sorts of things. Like the that and that and that a lot of it is kind of like unintentional, you know. That if they were like the kind of their that uh, parents end up telling their children the sorts of things that they that they wish their parents hadn't told them, you know. One, one, sorry, for, but sorry, one anecdote. Then <laughs> I remember one Christmas many many years ago, my mother uh, from her mother got a weighing scales <laughs> for herself. <Yeah>. That <laughs> was oh the cost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no. you know. Anyway, oh, I I read a f- like oh, I read a few things online that were trying to suggest that the mother daughter relationship was kind of abusive, which I I mean I suppose people can go I'll go read those and see what they think. But I felt that this this time I felt like the first time I watched the film I empathized with Lady Bird. You know I saw the teenage version of me in her or I try I you know I, her character was the one that I gravitated towards through. And then on this watch, especially after watching an interview with Greta Gerwig and her talking more about how it was really for her about mother and daughters, mothers and daughters, I focused more on Laurie Metcalf and on the mum's character. And being old, maybe like being what, you know, seven years older as well, I was kind of empathizing more with her character or, or even just kind of seeing things through her eyes and seeing the stress that the mother is under through the whole film, like financial stress. Her husband is going through a prolonged period of depression. He seems like a lovely man. Um, but they're clearly, you know, struggling within the household. She's very worried about what other people outside think of them and how they perceive the family. And all she wants is her daughter to just kind of behave herself, not to be a pain in the ass, not to use two towels when she goes for a shower, which is also a bugbear of my mother sometimes. <laughs> um, my mum's my mom is a dote, so she's not, my mum's not me, she's, she's lovely. Um, but, you know, th- you can see how clearly the mum is, is this wound up kind of ball of anxiety about the world that she is living in. And she's facing a daughter who is very free in expressing herself and saying whatever she thinks, lashing out to people, shouting at her brother, being mean to her brother, talking during the anti-abortion rally and during the, during school, which I thought was really good, um, a really good scene. And that's where a lot of the conflict comes from, the mother wanting to restrain the daughter and keep her safe and keep her, uh, you know, appropriate for the world and to ensure she can go out into the world and be okay. And the daughter saying, I don't like the world I'm in. I want to react. I'm a teenager. I'm selfish and I don't give a shit anyway. And I just, lo- I really loved that dynamic. I thought it was really tough, but really real. And really, Laurie Metcalf is so good in that role you know and I think the the scene for me that really was beautiful was when they go or the the, the scenes when they go uh, together yeah. looking at the houses that are for sale and together they live in this little fantasy world for an afternoon where they have money and can live in these big houses and they have a nice relationship together and I just thought that was really beautiful 
So I really like that particular moment in the film. One of the phenomenal things about the movie, um, having rewatched it, is the editing. The editing on this movie is absolutely amazing. And obviously it's Nick Howe and he was cutting it with Greta Gerwig. But I think what it does really well is it covers a year in the life of the characters. It begins shortly before Lady Bird goes back to school. Um, you know, when she's on holidays with her mother and then obviously they get in the car and they're listening to the Grapes of Wrath and then it escalates to an argument where Lady Bird throws herself out of a car. But it covers the entire year, like through all the holidays, through Thanksgiving, through Christmas, through New Year's, um, into like the following semester, into college applications, through to going to college. And it it just has these wonderful, well-observed kind of like snapshots where... Like, I don't know what the average scene length of this movie is, but I would reckon it is remarkably short. There are very few scenes of, like, extended dialogue. There are lots of really sharp, well-observed moments, like the family opening um, their Christmas presents together and getting socks. And the golfers don't diet, they just go on greens. Um, but you have, like, these small, like, them celebrating New Year's for a year. And it really... Everybody loves that joke. (laughs) 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 There's nobody, like, kind of, like, you know, kind of, you know, shaking their head or anything. (laughs) The the entire family is on board with it. It's like... Excellent joke. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a. I, I don't know why they wouldn't be, Andrew. I don't know why anybody would object to that joke. It's, it's, it reminds um, me of my own home life when I when I crack a joke and they, all the family are tumbling around laughing. Oh, father, you're so funny. But like, I, I think it's really good at cap- capturing that sense of like passage of time and using like short clips and shorthand to give you that, where you get the sense of that relationship between the two of them is tumultuous and intense. But it is also very, very loving. And you see that in like the first shot of the movie is the two of them lying in bed together facing each other. Like they're on holidays together. Miguel isn't there. Her father isn't there. Mm. But it's herself and her mother. And seemingly, while even in that scene, there are the little microaggressions, which are like, do I look like I'm from Sacramento? You don't need to make the bed. All that sort of there, There is a charge to it. They still drive in the car pleasantly together, listening to like Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath crying. And it isn't until like one hair trigger discussion sets things off and it just explodes. Like I, I like the way in which this captures a life lived I think there's something kind of incredible just in terms of how it's constructed and how that, that story is told via editing and through these kind of snort, short snapshots that you get of it. Mm-hmm. Even in the even in the editing, because I did a, a webinar on that and I, in the webinar for the teachers, I show that bit at the beginning, especially in the car, and I show them at the end with, with their edited almost on top of each other, the, the yeah. repeated images. And in the car, they're never facing each other. Yes, there's a, there are the odd two shots where they kind of half look, but then the singles are singles, whereas a lot of times they're not. So when you put them next to each other, they're not looking at each other at all, um, and then they had so it's even down to that kind of yeah, that kind of detail that at the end it's going to be the opposite of what we saw at the beginning, where they're both facing the same direction. At one stage, it looks like they're just it's the same image, except you discover oh no, that's that's the daughter. Um, so even at that level, and there's some lovely cuts from the daughter from um Saoirse Ronan from Ladybird you know consoling her her ex-boyfriend who doesn't want to come out to his catholic family and then it cuts to the mother with the priest consoling the priest so yeah. there's some perfectly little little cuts there um and as a teacher don't get too teachery about it but that's one of the interesting aspects of the film that a teacher would bring in is how the women are represented rep- represented um 
and they're constantly taking care of men <laughs> all the time. The men are the, the men are the needy ones. They're so much more needy than the women. If you look <laughs> at it, the only time a man, I think, ha helps a woman is is the nurse, the male nurse at the beginning. It seems that um, uh, Larry Metcalf's character has been attacked by a pencil. Some some patient has a pencil and they're coming up and they're quite happy. And she goes, oh, thanks for the help. Oh, yeah, who knew a pencil could be so dangerous? Yeah, yeah, next time we're going to get crayons and that's it. And I think that's the only time a man helps a woman in the whole film, apart from maybe the dad helping but with the paperwork. The father, the father helps with the college application. He does drop her off Behind his wife's back. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I do love, by the way, them at the end where like he's the one who brings them both together and he's like, and also please don't ever tell her that I did this. Um, where it's like, look, it's very important that the two of you now understand each other, but also don't drag me into this, please um like it yeah. again i dad representation in this movie and in little women very very good uh no notes i would say in terms of the movie's nostalgia for the 2000s which i think is kind of interesting i think Aoife mentioned this where this is like this is i think just a little bit after again this is the thing where people assume it's autobiographical i think gerwig would have missed this by a couple of years so the the timeline is chosen quite specifically it isn't that she's adapting her own childhood. She's adapting something proximate to it, but still carefully changed. Yeah. Uh, it notably is set in 2002 to th through 2003, which Andrew's like getting his 250 bingo card out here and he's like long 90s. Darren's going to talk about the end of history. <laughs> and he's right. Where like, I love that you have the opening montage, which just goes around the school and you immediately establish this is after 9-11. You have the never forget image as well. You have the discussion of like, oh, I'm going to New York, but aren't you worried about terrorism? Don't be such a Republican. Um, or even things where Lady Bird's like, oh, maybe I'll be able to get into colleges in New York because maybe people are afraid to apply because of terrorism. But I do think it's interesting that this movie doesn't unfold from like September 2001 through to like May 2002. It instead goes from September 2002 through to September 2003. And it's kind of interesting because, and this is where Darren is worrying that he's going to turn into Kyle from the movie, where you have, and Gerwig has talked about this, the news footage that plays throughout the movie, it's all carefully, carefully synchronized. Gerwig went to great pains to make sure that when characters were watching the news, it made sense for them to be watching that news at that point in the plot. So, you know, Lady Bird is watching the invasion of Iraq in March of that year. She's watching it on the couch. You see it appear several times in the background. You see posters for Reagan when she goes and she visits like uh, Lucas Hedges' family as well. Um, in Sacramento in, yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of Re Reagan's kind of... Orange um, County kind of, yeah. Well, it was his, 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 his home when he was uh, governor of California. Yeah. And you have even like Lady Bird at the start when she's riding in the car. One of the lines before she throws herself out is, I just, I just want to live through something. Which is kind of I love that line. It's it's insane because it's a line that you associate with like those long nineties, the end of history, the post Cold War existential on way. It's like oh, we've reached the end of nothing is happening in the world. There's nothing important. I feel like I've missed out on all the important things. And it's insane <laughs> to have a character one year after September 11th be so self centered that they're like, I wish I was just living through an important time in history. That, I wish that. Sorry, I agree. That's what's so. Gas. That's what's so good about Lady Bird, the, the character that she's, she's so absorbed and she's, you know, like when you're a teenager, 
unless you're into politics, you're not really... Like, you pay attention, but the world doesn't feel like it's happening. It's not like the world you're living in. It's the world that's happening elsewhere. Yeah. And she just, like... She might be watching... She was sitting on, sitting on the couch, lying on the couch, watching the Iraq war, you know, happening, and doesn't really seem to register with her because it's just like any other show that's on the telly, isn't it, to her? Like, it could be a movie. Um, and that myopia of being a teenage girl or teenager is so well done, but it's not like something to judge. It's not like she's not judging Lady Bird for doing it. She's just like, she doesn't care because <laughs> she doesn't realize. I would go one step further. And this is where I take the swing for like the A1 or the F on my English paper talking about Lady Bird, where I go, <laughs> yeah, Con- Connor has reached forward and started marking this. Where I... <laughs> he has a notebook. He, 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 he does. I, I, underneath his foppish hairdo, he's produced a pen. Um, but I, I do wonder if there is something in that very deliberate choice to set this movie in parallel with the invasion of Iraq. Not with the invasion of Afghanistan, not with September 11th, but with the invasion of Iraq specifically. And it is this story of somebody who has lived a very sheltered existence, who, as her mother has pointed out, has had all the harsh secrets of life kept from her. She doesn't know about her father's depression. She doesn't know that her father was fired from her job, from his job. She doesn't know that her father was embarrassed by the fact that, you know, she had to get out and walk to school, that she didn't want to be seen with him. She doesn't think about how her actions affect others or have consequences. And all of a sudden, over the course of the movie, she gradually comes to terms with the idea that she is not the center of the universe. She instead exists in a world where there is cause and effect effect and consequence and that her actions have repercussions and that she is part of a larger community it does feel like you can read this allegorically in some way and this is where darren's like look at greta gerwig great american filmmaker as a commentary on post 9-11 america where it's grappling with its place in the world where you're having this realization that you are not the unipolar power anymore you've not won the cold war you do not exist at the end of history you instead occupy a space in which there is cause and effect there is consequence there is action and reaction And the idea that, like, running that in parallel with the coverage of the Iraq war, which is obviously going to be very charged to anybody rewatching it. And to be honest, was for many people of Gerwig's generation, many of the people who she worked with, many of the people in the social circles in Los Angeles and California, Los Angeles and New York, where she worked. Like, for many of those people, the Iraq war was a galvanizing moment where people kind of sat up and said, "Okay, we need to engage with this world we don't we no longer have to worry about you know sitcoms where people live in rent controlled apartments with no consequence whatsoever we no longer live in a world where you know we're kind of where our great war is a spiritual one and our great depression is our lives we instead exist in a world where there are consequences and we are part of something larger and i like the idea that lady bird coming to that conclusion herself extending empathy to other people in some ways exists at a moment in time culturally where America was facing a similar reckoning. Darren says, if we're making a big abstract swing for the fences, pitch for Lady Bird as a great important movie about 21st century America. Is Does any of that make any sense? No. I think I'm afraid you won't get your first choice. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I like it. I mean, I think it's probably not what she intended, but I still think that you could read that into well, it. Do you know what I mean? She she's talked about like choosing the footage carefully. Like it, the, yeah. that stuff is in there very deliberately. Yeah. Like every like again, that's we think of these this as a mumblecore yeah. indie movie, but it's made with that care and attention that it 
you know, I I don't know. I I think I think it. I th- yeah, Darren, Darren, you're you're a very bright student, okay? And I love these monologues. <laughs> They're great. They add lots to class discussion. But if you could just shorten them a little bit, or maybe Fair come point. to me before class and tell me, just give me an outline, and then we'll, we we can be able to work it in, into the class with better. Yeah. Uh, but. Very, very well done. Well, I, I think um, I, I think that I, when you think of the discussions that Ladybird is hearing about the Iraq War, she hears a little bit from that awful yes. character uh, that Timothy yeah. Chalamet plays. <laughs> so it feels like she's she's reacting like her opinions are kind of out of step with people because like he's telling her you need to care about Iraq War. It's really serious, and she's like anything in life could be as terrible as, as, as war. And when she's in the anti-abortion talk, she's saying just because something looks ugly doesn't mean you, it's, a, it's a bad thing. So she's kind of out of step with people, but at the same time, she's kind of correct in her, Floppy, in her out of stepness. That, that was a great line that she had for the abortion thing at the end. But <laughs> Floppy hair, okay, yeah. you don't trust him because he's, he's poncing around the way he's posing. But as soon as you saw him reading in the dark, you're saying, ah, feck off, come on. Nobody <laughs> reads in the dark. He's squinting at it. So quite clearly you're just posing next to the flipping pool. Reading alone at the party, at the party at his house as well. Like, oh, yeah. Man. Listen, we've all met these boys. And like, I loved his comments about the, about the, uh, the mobile phone and he's like eventually you know we'll they want to like they'll get chips they'll in get, your head they'll get the phones into you or they'll, they'll get chips in your head and she's trying to ask she's like really naive so she's like what do you mean and he can't even really <laughs> understand what he's trying to say either but he's pretty convinced <laughs> that what he's saying is right you know um it's so it's so well done i'm trying not to participate in the economy but don't you go to private school uh, yeah that's for my parents um <laughs> <laughs> But so I, good. I do so think good. that empathy is a huge part of it. That one of the things I really like is that we she'd, sorry she'd kill his family. <laughs> but that was such a good God's line. kind of doing that already. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, there's some sorry. great lines in it. Aren't there there, there are some great some lines. Crackers. Uh, but I I do think that like one of the things I really like we mentioned the empathy of the movie and the idea of empathy being important. I love that even though this is a 94 minute movie, it is incredibly tight in terms of editing. You still get a lot of these small scenes where characters are comforting and caring for one another, where you get like Lady Bird is stuck inside her own head, but the movie isn't like Gerwig. And again, it's a very interesting thing a very challenging thing to do as a director to make a movie that is about this character that aligns with this character that is about the psychology of this character but also is perfectly willing to step outside that and give you a a kind of a, a wider viewpoint so like you get her contrasted with her mother where like she has the moment with like miguel's girlfriend outside where she's like i hate my mother and she's like well your mother's a really warm person she took me in she's incredibly kind and generous and you keep seeing that throughout the movie where like you know, Connor mentioned the sequence with the pencil that ends with her giving a gift to her co-worker. She gets a little dress for the co-worker's child. Even when they're having the argument in the aisle, it is a Costco or wherever. She's still, you know, it's like, oh, I want to see baby pictures to somebody she sees in the background of the shot. We see her comforting uh, the priest, as we mentioned there as well. Like there is this kind of sense that people are generally empathic and kind and generous and like Lady Bird's selfishness kind of contrasts with that. Definitely. I like the idea that the film has a viewpoint where the viewpoint is in some ways antagonistic to where its character starts out. I, th- I think there's something very clever in that and how it's constructed. I think that... I, I... Yeah, and you, and you... Sorry, you've gone. No, no. No, no, what have you gone? 
I was going to be negative, was... so you go on. Oh, okay. <laughs> Andrew, you can split the difference by. I, I was, I was going to, yeah, I, I think I, I disagree with Connor because I, 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 or, or, or maybe I have, maybe I have not, um, maybe I've uh, not understood, but I really like Danny. Um, I loved Danny, and I, I, it was actually the one mo- moment in the movie that I cried. Is when he 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 was coming out, and I uh, felt uh, I was like crying with him. Yeah. And so, and I think Lucas Hedges is is was was terrific. He was offered either male lead in this movie. He could have been Kyle, or he could have been Danny, and he chose Danny. He's perfect as Danny. Wow. My problem isn't with Danny. This is this is what I was going to say about Gerwig loving all her characters. My problem was what they do with Danny afterwards. So she consoles him and it's a beautiful moment and he's he's really good in it and it's there's the bin on one side and Danny on the other and there's little purple plants on, on the window ledge beautifully framed and she's in the doorway kind of in between two places and she has to step out in order to console him. She gives him the hood and cuts to the mother doing the same thing and you're thinking, okay, so something's going to happen with Danny. Like they can't just leave Danny like that. But it appears that she's going to keep a secret. So now Danny is stuck in the closet and she's gone off to New York and, and I, I just I'm watching that and I've, I've discussed this with other teachers and they, they're saying but that's part of Lady Bird's narcissism that she, you know, we don't need to see what happens to Danny but I'm thinking yeah but Lady Bird didn't make the film Gerwig made the film can we not just have something you know uh, he says something anything cut to Danny in Paris in a cafe in Paris yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah why not or Danny's with her at the party yeah. he looks or, over or... a table and like Bruce Wayne is enjoying a freno branche <laughs> <laughs> or he just whispers <laughs> or even if he just says look I told mum or something at you know at the dinner table at later on or just something give me something with Danny and I just didn't like what they did to Danny after that moment it's like this is Lady Bird being empathetic she's hugging Danny and that's it I, I, I like that like- though I like the implication that they get they still they're still friends afterwards like at yeah. the graduation dinner he yeah. stops by and says yeah. hello I like the idea that they are still we just don't see it because it's only 94 minutes long but I like the idea that Make there is this acknowledgement minute long and give me a scene with Danny in Paris with his boyfriend <laughs> I believe you'll find that it's pronounced Danny in Paris and then what's his name Michael Caine looks over at them and he goes yeah. waves and Danny waves back that's all that's all I want Saoirse Ronan in her thick Michael Caine accent saying you wouldn't say anything to me, nor me to you, but we both know that you made it. <laughs> what what ending are you proposing then for like Kyle? This is like so if you give Danny an ending, you have to give Kyle an ending. What ending do you give Kyle? Oh, Kyle's withering away in his bed, isn't he? With syphilis. <laughs> I, I mean, but but even then, like I like that even after that really awful sequence upstairs in Kyle's bedroom, where they have the big blowout argument, and Kyle seems like the worst human being in the history of the world, and like we we've covered podcasts about the Holocaust on this. Well, he's just show. very much that yeah. guy, the 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 teenager. Yes, yes, he but is. But then he, he has he, the dad as well. You see, that that's the shot. That's that's, that's shot, exactly it. You get you get the shot. That's exactly it. She leaves the bedroom. She goes down the stairs and the camera reminds you of like his dying dad and yes on one hand you could argue that's incredibly cynical and manipulative it's a great way to put the finger on the scales and go huh maybe this kid is a reason that he's as messed up as he is but it is that sense of humanism i think as well it kind of extends the idea that people other than lady bird do have lives that are happening and she's gradually becoming aware of that which i think could is you, nice could the dad bat, could the dad be faking it just to not talk to him like 
just so it's <laughs> <laughs> that awful what, what what i liked about the about that particular scene the sex scene is that it goes terribly wrong for her, like she's betrayed by him but she still manages to feel like she's won because you know it was a consensual thing it wasn't you know it's not like a you know a sexual assault or anything like that you know and what what she says to him about it is really funny like she's basically saying like well i won you know like you know a lot of virginity to you but i still you know um it all went my way kind of and i I thought that even though she's devastated by his betrayal of her, that he doesn't give her the info and he makes her think he think he's also a virgin and it's really cruel. She's able to like, because she's, she's so inward looking and kind of obsessed with her own sense of the world. She's like, well, still I got something out of it and ergo I'm upset, but it wasn't a total failure. And I thought that was kind of, I'd never seen that sort of discussion like that in, in that kind of role before. Usually it's either really, really bad experience or really really good experience but hers was somewhere in the middle um and that's maybe why she's kind of able to get over his betrayal after she obviously cries in the car with her mom and stuff but i liked her take on it i thought it was really really funny well i yeah i think there i feel like there's something kind of real i suppose in that idea of because oftentimes in real life and in movies it's this sense of kind of the character wanting it to be something special but there's also the 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 very real kind of situation where it's also something that you want to kind of get done with you know get over with yeah 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 and just to kind of like okay and she and she does yeah yeah like her friend the friend says that to her then it's like you're you're no longer virgin so the world is now yours like you know and that's the truth of it i suppose yeah you know, I want the romantic ending with Danny in Paris. That's the ending that I want now. After after that, it's like maybe Danny gets to have a problem. Danny in Paris. Danny in Paris. Yeah, That'd be the second. Film, Danny in Paris. Yeah. He deserves it. He deserves it. But uh, in terms of other stuff, just again worth noting that this arrived around the time that there was a wave of two thousands nostalgia. It was uh, the year after Netflix revived the Gilmore Girls, which had run from two thousand two thousand seven. NBC had just resurrected the sitcom Will and Grace, which ran from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand and six. Total Request Live was brought back for the first time since two thousand eight as well. Steve Madden sandals and fanny packs were back as well the von dutch trucker hat a staple of britney spears mid-2000s wardrobe was brought back by kylie jenner as well there was a sense that the 2000s were having a moment in culture and it's kind of interesting to think of ladybird existing as a kind of a snapshot of that as well um all right is there anything we want to talk about ladybird that we haven't discussed already and jumping out at you guys so I've, I've i've one important point um the transformation of the bathroom from one of the most dangerous rooms in your house uh, statistically speaking, to a place of warmth and private conversation. Uh, I think that was great. It was, uh, and also pleasure. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's no longer the most dangerous room in your house, according to uh, Lady Bird. I like that. Oh, and the, the, the other thing is, for some reason, the people who type up the lists for the English teachers think Lady Bird is one word. Yes. As if it's an insect. That. And no matter how many times I have told them, I've told them personally, <laughs> they can't actually change it for some reason. But anyway, it's just, yeah, there are those, the, 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 the change of the bathroom and Ladybird not being a, an insect. Um, the ba- they're going to put a hyphen in it yeah just to make it even more complex I mean the, the bathroom's interesting because that was something Gerwig specifically wanted it's like something that she said she noted about Sacramento that she missed in New York was that the bathrooms were all tiled in Sacramento whereas in New York it was just the floors so the bathroom aesthetic very important to Gerwig in terms of like setting this realistically in terms of the name 
It is worth noting that although the film is titled Lady Bird and although the end credits credit her as Lady Bird Fearson, she does end up embracing the the name Christine. Um, the name you gave me, it's a good name. Um, there is, the, there is some, again, that, that feels like it ties back to Connor's point about the happy ending and the reconciliation and maybe to the point perhaps about Gerwig as somebody who is not necessarily of the indie movement that she happened to come out of in a sense where like it is very much like okay you've had your crazy ladybird phase now you're Christine that now is, you are yeah it's feminist feminized Christ is the name as well isn't it Christine so that, you know. that exactly mm. yeah um Aoife anything for um, yourself anything jumping out of you the only thing I was gonna say um was particularly enjoyed where I when she turns 18, she goes into the shop and she buys a pack of cigarettes, a scratch card and a copy of Playgirl. Inappro- well, no, appropriate smoking. <laughs> and I just appropriate, thought- smoking. A- appropriate smoking. There is some underage smoking as yeah. well. Um, yeah. So I thought that was just, it's some, it summed her up, you know, really eager to become an adult, knows exactly these things that will signify adulthood, even though she might not really care too much about them, but she's going to do it. <laughs> and I just love that. <laughs> that gra- the great shot of her, um, again, just sitting again, smoking the cigarette and reading like Playgirl. Um, it's just such a great shot as well. Do we have any food waste, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. You fry Strone uh, when they, they, they saw the theater kids go out and they're in a restaurant and they're all throwing food at each other. And at several points, I think Lady Bird turns down the lunch uh, from Julie's um, uncle. Um, oh, uncle. yes. There's a lot of lunches there's get a, thrown in the bowl. What happened to the eggs yeah. at the beginning? There's a lot of weird weight. There's a lot of weight yeah. stuff in it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, I want to be thin, uh, which seems weird now, but actually was rampant back in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, the you know, size zero era and everything. So it's hard, as hard as it is to watch it, it was like that. I I always, what I, I kind of read that as, as again, an example of Lady Bird's like solipsism. Like she's, she's sitting next to Julie, who is obviously like a woman, a young woman who is overweight and is to us, you know, I don't know if she's anxious about it, but I think as somebody who is overweight himself and is, a, is an overweight man, which is a different thing, you are always aware of the fact that you are fat. So when you're sitting next to Saoirse Ronan and Saoirse Ronan saying, oh, I'm watching my weight. Um, while turning down the lunch that you were offering her. Yeah, it's not very There nice. is that sense of how self-involved the kind of Lady Bird is. There is also the moment where... But she's she... oblivious to her friend's poverty as well. Her friend is obviously, the, 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 you know... Yeah. Um, what's her friend? What's her friend's name again? Julie. Julie, Julie yeah. Julie? Julie's obviously, like, I hate to call it rungs, but like she's obviously much poorer than Lady Bird because at the end they're living in what's clearly some kind of temporary Hotel, rented yeah. accommodation somewhere. Um, compared to Lady Bird, and she's there's no no talk of her going to college, and she's she's getting A's all the time. So, she, but she's still can't afford to go to college or anything. So that's kind of um, I thought that yeah. compared to the Danny, but I actually liked the subtlety of that. I I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's I I do also love that like Julie kind of trades off trades up or trades sideways to Catherine Newton as her best friend um, <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, and there is the moment where like Saoirse Ronan is looking at herself in the mirror, saying, "I wish I'd look like women on move in movies." And I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> by the way, we should note we should note by the way that Saoirse Ronan uh, did have acne. That's not makeup. She did have an acne. I was wondering no. that when I when I was watching it, I was like, is that her acne? Uh, yeah. Apparently, she didn't have it as a teenager, I believe, but she did get it shortly before filming due to lack of sleep and stress. And so they decided she talked to the makeup artist. And they decided they would not cover it up. And they would actually use it uh, in the film, which I think is a really, really good choice as well. Yeah. We should mention, by the way, as well, this was shot on digital, but it was treated. Uh, it 
it isn't digital grain. Uh, they used a technique, and we'll include in the show notes, where I believe they rendered the static uh, from the Alexa camera that they were using to create the illusion of film grain, uh, which I find kind of interesting, where you have this idea of we're shooting on digital, but we want it to look like film. And again, that's another example of Gerwig perhaps breaking with that indie mumblecore aesthetic from which she came, where the whole thing with mumblecore was we're shooting on digital. We want it to look like digital. We want it to look authentic and real. Whereas Gerwig here, you have a shot on digital, but it's rendered like it's film. And she's talked about wanting a sense of distance between the audience and the film, because obviously, as Andrew kind of said, it's a movie about memory. Um, also worth noting the soundtrack as well. Um, I do like that she avoids oh, yeah. she avoids the cliche of the cool songs from the 2000s. She said herself, it's like when when we were... <laughs> it's a Dave Matthews band. Yeah, but it, it's like yeah. I didn't want us to go back and to like pick the hot indie like stuff we love as adults that we found on albums from 2002. I wanted it to be the music that we actually listened to. All the best. <laughs> well, all, all, the, all the songs that teenagers were listening to, like Justin Timberlake is on the soundtrack to Lady Bird. Justin Timberlake's Cry Me a River. Who doesn't love Cry Me a River? <laughs> but like, I, Who doesn't? And well, I, 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 I do a very good version of that. Do you want a few bars? Maybe they take Connor's taken out a bass guitar as well to go with his foppy hair. Um, I do love that Kyle is a bassist. Um, Sorry. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah Kyle, he, Kyle does a very good bass face in that clip of them playing um, the band thing. But uh, John Bryan does the score and I love John Bryan's music. So it was really nice. Um hearing him do the score the teach, that's one thing I include with the, the webinars is the list of the is the songs because I know the, and the teachers always go yeah that's exactly what I want more than anything I just want a <laughs> list of all the songs well, it was just you know copy and pasted from Spotify but at the same time alright and just crash into me <laughs> And and one more thing, the kind of genius bonus, I do like that both uh, Baumbach and Gerwig apparently share a love of Sondheim. Um, and again, mm. it's been put, that's a central part of Marriage Story as well, is obviously Adam Driver performing music from Sondheim. And here, I like that merrily we roll on. The plot of that is about the idea of like former friends looking back on childhood. So it's thematically tied to the idea of what Lady Bird is. And also you have this idea of like falling in with a crowd, which is also what Lady Bird does once she finishes appearing in uh, Merrily We Go Along. All right. Just... Um, and and uh, they both sing yeah. uh, Being Alive is in is the song that Adam Driver sings and the song that uh, it's a da- somebody sings. It's the very start of the theatre section. Somebody sings Being Alive as well from Company. And and I love the Jesuit uh, football coach. Um, again, like how broad some of the humor is. Like there's some really good cartoonish humor here. Like the Jesuit I coach. I love the one. And, how, and then you rush to the like front of the screen and then one, you just look at the audience and just bam. And you see, you see the, the one scribbling the white the line. Yeah, the white line that's singing. As a teacher, that's what they do. I tell you, I've... I rarely use the board, but whenever I use the board, like they all write it down immediately. So sometimes I just go up and write random words on the board and they're all writing it down. And I'm going, well, read out what you wrote there. And they, oh, oh yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> I, I I do like though that how like it, it speaks to the kind of like the the kindness of this movie. That it doesn't just show the kids and they're all like shaking their heads yeah. and kind of ignoring what he's saying they're really paying attention and, and making yeah. notes on their scripts um, on their playbooks as he describes them which i quite like um, <laughs> all right then i think that then wraps it up unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about anything we haven't discussed or anything jumping out from any notes all right then 
what we normally do at the end of podcasts, we ask for recommendations, but because this is a Leaving Cert podcast, because this is a text that will appear on the comparative question, what we are going to ask our guests to do is to think of something that might pair well with it. So to give Connor, to give Aoife a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. What would be your comparative text for Ladybird? I don't think this counts, but it's on the English, or generally on English Leaving Cert, is the, the um, or certainly was the year that I did it, and it came up in the exam, but it was the poetry question. It was the, 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 the love song of J. Alfred Brufrock, and that kind of shared... Um, theme of uh, uh, frustration and kind of uh, powerlessness and what if this is the best version kind of um, a question about it but also it's it's it kind of the the you have the the, the kind of classical illusions mixed with kind of modernist um, form I suppose where where they, they like like this movie starts with um, uh, Grapes of Wrath. And although that's not kind of, um, it, it's it, it's classic in the, in, the, in the context of being a 21st century movie refer, uh, referencing 20th century um, work. And no, I, 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 I enjoy that, um, uh, that poem a lot. And I, I was kind of, I think when I was doing my leaving cert, I was hoping for T.S. Eliot to come up, and he did. Um, I was told, yeah, I think I read. You, you mentioned it last week, question. yeah. So your time, your yeah, time studying but, it was not wastelanded. Hey, we really have to talk um, after class, Darren. We really have to talk. <laughs> he got a little life out of reading wasteland. <laughs> um. And the, the um another another one I think it's kind of an obvious one in terms of like teenage coming of age. But sure, sh- I I think like you can interpret it in terms of um it all being a sort of like a phase. Is a, a a book where somebody doesn't really kind of mature is a catcher in the rye. It's very the the, the J D Salinger. Well, she does reference wanting to live in the woods where she wants to go where writers live in the woods, which is a great line. <laughs> well, exactly. But it, it's <laughs> it's and it, it's it's kind of that sort of uh, snobbish as well attitude of kind of a, a teenager wanting to be um, something or, or kind of like turning one's nose up as uh, at much of the world and not wanting to kind of. Um, conform or be a phony and it 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 it, it, it i think you you can kind of you can you can you can look at it as an adult and think like oh this is it's like insufferable it's just like a kyle <laughs> kind of um but yeah but it's very true it it does uh, i think speak to that part of of of, of one's life okay so you're recommending the autobiography of kyle from <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's those kind of sort of literary things. I think some something that's less literary that I'm enjoying is um, uh, I'm a Virgo that I've just started watching. The Boots Riley show on Amazon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, all right. And Aoife, what would you recommend? What would be your comparative texts? 
the comparative text has to be like a poem or a book. Doesn't have like, to be. Doesn't, it? doesn't have to be. That, but I think I think okay. Andrew has pushed us in that direction, and exposed how uncultured yeah. I am. Okay. Yeah, we were, we were saying we'd try try to kind of go for plays and novels and that, but you can also kind of like talk about um, other other movies or or, or things that you're TV enjoying shows. generally that that you thought of. Cool. Them. Yeah. Actually, so yeah, in terms of a novel, actually, there's a new, it made me think of this, of a new novel by Nicole Flattery called Nothing Special, which is set in New York and is about a young woman who goes to work in Andy Warhol's factory. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, and it's not a book, it's not a classic Andy Warhol book where like the great man himself barely appears in it. It's not like, so the character I think is quite similar to Lady Bird because she's not, she, she's someone who is kind of obsessed with herself and isn't looking outward into, you know, the world around her in the sense she's, she's a deeply, she does notice things that are going on around her, but not the, maybe the, what we were talking about there about Lady Bird noticing like the Iraq war or those kind of contextual things. She's talking about like the individuals that she spends time with. And so it's a really interesting book and she's really kind of quirky, character who like Lady Bird is does stuff that maybe is a little bit unusual and is weird in terms of how people typically behave so yeah nothing special by Nicole Flattery I think people would find stuff there and I was thinking of an album but I don't think you can maybe count a, an album as a text no but absolutely live through this go for it by whole yeah, okay cool I'd say live through this by whole because I think the lyrics to a lot of the songs on live through this I certainly as a teenage girl really loved singing them and listening to them because they are really like railing against the patriarchy and just against like the system or whatever. Um, and Courtney Love is also a very intriguing and interesting and iconic um, figure in the rock music world. So I would I would posit the two of those as my comparative texts. Right. We should we should expand the the comparative text to include albums, but we'll just. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, maybe song lyrics, maybe go for like, the, yeah, yeah, we're what are we saying? Really have have like uh we 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 won't dock points. For, <laughs> for, for, for... A two rather than an A one. Alright, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, we'll submit a white paper to the Department H2 of Education or whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Connor, what would be your comparative text for Lady Bird? So I'm going to go for uh, Alison Bechdel's Fun Home because I ooh, which has got an adaptation of The Gate, hasn't it? Yeah, The Gate. That's a musical and. I can't get up to it, so I'm just going to stick with the graphic novel. <laughs> it's it, it again. It's coming of age, you know, where she's, but it's with herself and her father. She wrote a sequel. I forget the name because I have it up here. Are you my mother? Uh, which isn't as good, but Fun Home. Um, it's it, it's a classic, really. I think of the genre, one of the first kind of graphic novel memoirs to make it big and to get acclaim. But she's coming to terms with her own sexuality and discovering her father's sexuality at the same time. And it's quite dense, um, gets quite intellectual at times, but it is absolutely fantastic. And I think it would make a lovely companion piece for Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of comparative text for myself, um, the most obvious one is, look, we've already recommended one biography of Kyle from Lady Bird. I feel like it's only fair that we recommend another. I think it's another story about a teenager who is very self-involved, very solipsistic, who sees the entire world, maybe even the universe as a reflection of themselves and has to come to terms with the idea that there are bigger ideas than themselves. I think Dune would make a really good partner uh, with Lady Bird uh, from a certain point of view. In fact, I'm very disappointed Saoirse Ronan isn't playing the Aurelian character that instead it's, Fr- it's Florence Pugh, who is the other star of 
Little Women is playing that role in Dune Part 2. Um, and just in terms of another recommendation... That's the Chalamet as well. That is. That, it, that's when, when the biography of Kyle. It is very much, it is very much like... <laughs> Kyle probably read and loved Dune, and is he starring in Dune? So good for him. I, I unironically love Dune, to be clear, but I am well aware that it is a very much a pretentious teenage boy book, but it's a very good pretentious teenage boy book. The other recommendation I would have is we mentioned uh, Joan Didion, who opens, whose text opens this, um, and again... Didion, very famously an author who catalogued the end of an era, much like Lady Bird, I would argue, catalogues the end of the long 90s and the beginning of the American 21st century. But the idea of the White Album, the, the book that she wrote, the collection of personal essays that was published in 1979, which very famously has the title essay, which is about the end of the 60s, uh, but is one of the, for me, one of my cortex in understanding California. Um, as a very strange part of the American landscape. Gerwig herself has said that, like, uh, and the quote here, which is very apt for a Leaving Cert student, reading Didion was like, and realizing that Didion was from Sacramento, was like living in Dublin and reading Joyce for the first time. It's like, oh my God, it's possible for somebody from here to be literary and to be artistic and creative. So Woodhull hardly recommend that. Um, obviously, I've read other stuff from her as well, but it's the White Album is the collection of essays that really kind of stayed with me. And I'm sure she'll plug it in a moment as well, but I found elements of Social Capital, actually, uh, which I read uh, from a wonderful <laughs> author by the name of Aoife Barry. Um, but I, I was quite surprised when I was reading it. I assumed it would be more of an academic, um, kind of like a, a history of like again like like facts and kind of and it is that it certainly is that but the thing that really took me when i was reading it was the personal perspective of it where it, it captured a sense of a lived experience of being for me a young teenager and i think for yourself a teenager as well at a point when mm -hmm. the world was changing and again ladybird is the story of being a teenager at a point where the world is changing and coming to terms with that i think social capital would be an interesting uh, thing to pair oh. with that as well thank um, you very much all right. Thank you. And you're wearing an, an orange top, which matches the cover, the cover of my book. Well. So, um, yeah. All right. Thanks, then. Um, so, Connor, where are you at? What can we find you? If listeners want a bit more Connor in the lives, where I, can I, I'm going to do some self promotion. I just re remembered I have got an article, an essay published in, wait for the title now. This is Social Capital. It's nice and catchy. This is also lovely and catchy. I have to actually have the book in front of me as I read it out. <clears throat> yeah, I was wondering why you're reaching for a prop in an audio medium. Um, like... Perspectives. Are you ready? Okay, so you can find me in this book, Perspectives on the Teaching of English in Post-Primary Education, published by U uh, Cork University Press. So you can find me in there. Hey. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, or, or just on Twitter, at Connor Smurf, which is probably <laughs> easier. <laughs> You're quoting the article like 280 characters at a time. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. No uh, and, and Aoife... Where can we, well, that's that's a good thing these days. I think. I think. Yeah. Not, not having oh a blue tick is probably a good, uh, good social indicator. But Eva, what about yourself? Where can we find you? Watch out! And uh, is there anything that you would There's like to recommend to us? A lot of people like knocking themselves over to to like not get a blue tick. Yeah. It's like there were there were there were, to not have one. There was like a, f a fuss like people were making about trying to remove Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like Stephen King and it's like, like, I don't like what this says about myself. Yeah, LeBron James. No, I didn't pay for it, but I don't want it for free either. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to seem like. One of the, yeah. 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 I don't want to seem like the kind of person who would have a blue tick. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately. Kyle. Kyle. Yeah. Like, 
some uh, like the opposite of what it was. So bizarre. Well, I'm on to I'm on Twitter and I don't have a blue tick. I used to, I think, but it was taken. I, I definitely did. I think it's been taken off me. Um, if it hasn't, I should rectify it. I don't <laughs> want a blue tick either because I'm not one of them. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Sweet Oblivion Twenty Six, and I'm also on Instagram, which I kind of post a bit more on on the set the same name Sweet Oblivion Twenty Six, and then my book Sweet. Oh no, my book isn't called Sweet Oblivion. My book's called Social Capital published by Harper Collins and it's in bookshops now and if you go to sweetoblivion.substack.com you'll find my writing on like culture stuff so tv film books music and that sort of thing so yeah fantastic excellent um thank all you. right we appear to have lost one of our guests i'm going to take that as a cue to wrap up thank you so much Eva. it has been an absolute pleasure we thank will be you. back next week we'll be continuing our season looking at the leaving certificate Next on the list, we're going to be taking a look at Diego Maradona. That is the documentary. It will be the first documentary that we have covered on this podcast. I am kind of daunted by that experience. We have a fantastic guest lined up for it. I don't want to announce who it is in case it falls through. But with a bit of luck, next week we will have somebody who knows what they're talking about when it comes to talking about documentaries. Connor will be back as well. Thank you so much, Aoife. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Connor. Thanks, Thank everybody. you, Andrew. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks very much, everyone. guys. Bye. Bye.